still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends! And it's my show! <laughs> and you are our friends And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's drive Through right here On another sunny summer's day <laughs> Seems like the sun is out and the heat is everywhere. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. I don't know what's going to happen this week. We have a lot to talk about. But here he is, the man who'll be doing the talking, the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. You sure you don't want me to start this program out for you, <laughs> even though it is your show? I can start off. That would be nice. It's no problem at all. No, I, fans and friends and listeners, if you only knew the knew the frivolity nude, if you only knew the if you only knew the frivolity, right and, away with you, right away. And uh, well, I don't go straight to the gutter. The frivolity and the jocularity of which that we banter about, Brian Last and myself, the great one. Before we go on the air here, you would understand some of these show opens where we're giggling already. I have to laugh or else to cry today, because you know, Brian, we talked about before. Heyman was the voice of the voiceless or the voice of the homeless or whatever. Well, I am now the voice of the wallless. I am the, <laughs> the person who speaks for people who have no walls in their home. You're the voice of the wallless and Heyman's the voice of the walrus. The walrus. He is the walrus. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Uh, I sent you a picture day before yesterday because you refused to believe that I had a room in the rear of the castle here in my home that had no wall in it. It's not that it's I still refused, got a door. It's not that I refuse to believe it. It's that I never heard anyone say that to me before. I have a room with no walls. I was trying to figure out what does that mean? How does that well, it, how is that configured? Got, it's got two and three quarters walls. But the the main part of it, and there's a door on the 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 wall that is not there anymore. There's a you can walk right into the room from the outside without using the door, but the door is still there just for reference. We've had a few issues. Uh, I mentioned that we're doing a remodeling project that has been several years in the planning and the the making, the anticipation of the thing. And finally, boom, we pull the trigger at the hottest period of time in the history of Louisville, Kentucky. We decided to take all the windows and the wall off the fucking house. And we started finding things. So that's why this show is is somewhat late this week, because the record was set I believe this week it was on Tuesday. I had two plumbers, two electricians, a general contractor, four of his minions, and the project manager for the heating and air folks from the fine, fine company, Tom Drexler, 
heating, electric, plumbing, air conditioning. What else did I, they do it all? Isn't there a song? Call the plumber whose name is his number. Call the plumber whose name is his number. Call one Tom Drexler. That's his number. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I've been breathing 50-year-old insulation and dust and the drywall's been I have two rooms with no interior whatsoever, ceiling, walls, the floor is still there for now. And and one room without a wall on top of that, but everything starts getting put back together next week. The the only people here on the property now are by fine friends from the heating and air department. Uh, that are uh, making some last-minute adjustments to things we're moving around, and then the process starts to put it back together even better than before. And it's kind of like the $6 million man. We can rebuild him, and it is going to cost $6 million. But that's why that the program has been delayed this week, because there was hammering, there was sawing, there was bagging, there was blowing, there was pounding. There was a variety of various cacophonous noises going on here. And I, I don't think there was a point a couple of days where I went more than 20 minutes without somebody saying, here's the thing. I've, I've learned three phrases from all these tradesmen over here. They keep popping up the same three things. Number one is I've never seen that before. Number two is why did they do that? And number three is that's illegal as shit. But it's it's moving along swimmingly. And by the way, just so you know, I don't have any raccoons in the house, even though I don't have a wall, because stunning Steve Bradshaw is now up to six raccoons that he has caught, caged up, and returned to nature way down the road where they can't come back and tear up my side. Once again, I beg the question, at what point is it reasonable to slaughter the raccoons? Well, you got to go out there individually then because you can't just leave a trap out because it might get the deer or the rabbits. I've got I t- the deer population, honestly, has been a little disappointing this year because last year we had the the two or three adults and we had four of the cute little babies and they were just all around all over the place. This year we got two adults. We had one baby. I haven't seen them the past week and a half since 4th of July. I'm afraid they got run off to a new neighborhood by all the assholes with their fireworks. but. To partially make up for that, we got the two cutest little baby bunny rabbits you've ever seen living under the evergreen bush at the other end of the house. And they come out and sit in the sun and and just sit. You can peek out the front window and you're 10 feet away from them. They're just gorgeous. You don't like rabbits either, do you? In general, I'm not a big fan, but especially on my property, no. What the... Why? What in the world can you have against a, a cute little bunny rabbit? Hop... Here comes Peter Cottontail hopping down the bunny trail, hippity-hop-hop, hippity-hop-hop, Easter or Passover or whatever the fuck it is that you do is on its way. First of all, there's no rabbits involved with Passover. Let me just end that. Well, I don't really know how the rabbit got involved with Easter either. I don't know how a fucking resurrection of a zombie savior suddenly requires eggs and, and rabbits. but. Makes it more palatable, I guess. But uh, wh- what was the question? Why I don't want rabbits on my property? Why are you so anti-rabbit? The cute little bunnies that hop down their bunny trail and bring gifts to all the children. 
and leave quarters under your pillow at night when you lose a tooth or the first time you masturbate when you're a child. Quarter? You get Well, sometimes you get 50 cents. First time you masturbate when you're a child? What? Isn't that the legend that the bunny comes in when you lose a tooth or the first time you jack off and gives you a quarter under your pillow? I've never heard that part of it, no. Maybe I just lost that quarter completely independently and just always equated it oh, to boy. That, that momentous occasion. I don't know. You know, your little rabbit song didn't mention rabies anywhere. No, the raccoons have the rabies. Can't rabbits where, have rabies where, too? Where, where have you ever heard of a fucking rabid rabbit? I don't know. Rabbits have something, don't they? They can go nuts. Yes, they have cuteness. No, no beyond the cuteness. They have and, cuteness and I just and the chocolate cuteness. eggs for the kitties. Oh, get the fuck out of here. And, and, and little chubby cheeks and little, little whiskers when they wiggle their little pink nose. And they're so cute and they just fill you with joy. Are you a fan of chocolate at Easter time? I'm, I'm a fan eggs? of. I'm a fan of chocolate in moderation. Chocolate has, has actually has caffeine, which can cause acid reflux in those of us so inclined. So I go, I go for, you know, I, I love the Reese cups because you got the peanut butter to balance out the chocolate. I go for milk chocolate, not dark chocolate. Dark chocolate, heartburn city. You got to go for the milk chocolate. You got to balance it out. If you got chocolate syrup on your vanilla ice cream, that balances it. If you got peanut butter with your milk chocolate, that balances it. If you got white chocolate covering your Oreos, that balances it. But you can't just have chocolate, 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 or you, it'll, you'll get heartburn. What about you? What about me? Where? What's your stand on chocolate? I'm okay with chocolate. I like chocolate. I like oh, milk, well, good. milk I'm, chocolate. I'm Dark chocolate's good in moderation. The fucking Cadbury people are breathing a sigh of relief now that you're not going to ruin their business too, like you did well, with the fucking bunnies. Well, to be fair, I don't think you don't like I don't necess- pizza topping companies. I don't necessarily want cream inside of a chocolate fixture, like a chocolate egg. I'd rather have something more chocolate related. Wait a minute. You know, you're not talking cream like you put in your coffee. You're talking like Uh-oh. a cream set. Oh, wait a minute. This could be the heating and air people. Son of a cost. bitch. Hold on. I'll be back. All right. I'm sorry. We're back. That was just a brief uh, heating and air intermission where I just spent another $5,000. So yeah. we were talking about your- The rabbits got in the ducks, ladies and gentlemen. The ra- we got a, a rabbit carcass stuck in the duct. Uh, we did find some mouse- remains inside the wall the skeletal remains of uh mortimer he's older than mickey but you, anyway hey, so speaking of which wait a minute we, we've got to get back to what the, your complete disdain for every every piece of wildlife every genre of food it's not every piece of wildlife and i would just say you're not talking about putting cream it like in coffee in in the middle of your chocolate you're talking about a cream filled you don't want a cream filled chocolate no. What would you put inside your chocolate? I don't know. I like chocolate. Like a Milky Way's all right every now and then or something like that. But when it's an egg and inside of it's just all gooey. And I know you love gooey shit. Yeah. It's just all gooey white crap. I don't want that. The gooey cream filly. It's like a Twinkie, but it's chocolate instead of cake. Oh, it's disgusting. Oh, for God's sake. What were you? Change the subject then. What were you going to ask me? You're talking about tearing up walls and all this shit. Did you hear that story maybe two months ago, three months ago, about a family? It may have been like Indiana or something, where they were renovating their house. It was an old house, and they found 
miraculously almost completely preserved a McDonald's bag and burger and fries. Oh, yeah. From whatever, the early 60s, in perfect shape. It hadn't even aged at all. Well, I did that experiment several years ago, actually about, what, 12, 10, 10 years ago now, in Baltimore at Ring of Honor. Because at the uh, TV station, the, the Sinclair's flagship station, WBFF 45 in Baltimore, I believe it was, we would do the editing of the Ring of Honor television show. And because that television station is in like a, I don't, a cracked neighborhood would be an upgrade. Uh, it's a bad neighborhood. And the only place within a few miles to get anything to eat is a McDonald's on the corner. And so I would go and get bags of McDonald's and bring them and put them in the refrigerator in the break room at the TV station for with three o'clock in the morning because we're editing from, you know, seven, eight at night until six in the morning or whatever. So you got to have a meal. So I had my quarter double quarter pounders with cheese and 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 fries in there for just such an occasion. But the last time that I had left Baltimore, never to return to Ring of Honor, I left a bag of McDonald's in the refrigerator. Well, you're not supposed to touch other people's stuff, so nobody actually got into it. And I happened to talk to who was it? It may have been Delirious, it may have been Mark Davis or Dan Bynum, one of the folks on the crew, several months later. And they see, you know what? We just realized that you still had a bag of McDonald's in there and we opened it. It's still in the cardboard box, the double quarter pounder. And they opened it up and it looked exactly the same after like six months as it did the day that I put it in the refrigerator. They don't change. Not the McDonald's. Now, Wendy's Every other fast food place, they will go through some changes over the course of their lifespan if you don't eat them, if you leave them sitting around or in the fridge or whatever. But McDonald's, it looks the same, exactly the same. They found a retro Burger King in inside uh, behind a wall in Wilmington, Delaware, in a mall, a shopping mall. Did you read about this? Yeah, I saw that like two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, somebody just put a new wall up in the mall and the Burger King still had the prices and the posters on the walls and all the seats and the whole nine yards. But a, a time capsule of back when Burger King was good, too. What's your favorite McDonald's look in terms of the actual look of the the venue, the, uh, the store, the restaurant? <laughs> the venue? I prefer to see them sold out. Uh, no, um, I don't give a... You know what? The only thing is, is when they've got... Because people go to McDonald's for the name, obviously. You don't go for the cuisine. But when they've got a McDonald's where they've got a giant seating area and they've got a place for four people to stand at the counter and get their food, when it's always, every time you go in McDonald's, there's 20 people in line and, and four people sitting there. I think they should reverse those. Not a good traffic flow. Well, we got a program to do, don't we? I think that's it's what your we're doing. show. That's right. And that's what we're doing now. We're doing a program for the, and I've got to mention a couple of things. We'll get the business out of the way. This is the weekend, the big weekend. We almost didn't do a show in time to promote this one more time, but this weekend, Saturday, July 16th, 84 
of the original Jim Cornette red and yellow action figures go on sale at jimcornette.com as a fundraiser for the WHS Crusade for Children. They're $49.95 apiece, and all the proceeds of the 84 figures goes to the Crusade for Children, and I get some room in my garage closet because space is at a premium around here. I mentioned the story of how I had these back in the closet because the blister packs were cracked or broken, and I just had put them aside all those times I was selling the original figures, and then I finally was smart enough to ask the toy company if I could just get brand new blister packs because the figures are fine. So now, lovingly restored, mint condition, uh, original figures on sale noon Eastern at jimcornet.com on Saturday, July 16th. And for the the folks that got screwed around in Australia and New Zealand when the mail was screwed up and we could not send you the anything, uh, the bloody variants that sold out so quickly, we saved back 30 for the folks in Australia and New Zealand. There are two time zones or different time zones in Australia and New Zealand, and I think they've got a few sub-time zones, and we couldn't figure this out. So at 11 o'clock in Australia, 11 a.m. on Saturday, July 16th, and 1 p.m. in New Zealand, the main times, I don't know what they fucking are, just jump on jimcornette.com, and the only people that will be able to buy a bloody variant action figure, the 30 that we saved back, are people from Australia and New Zealand. Hotchkiss has got the rest of the world blocked. He's a he's a genius. He's a he's a Merlin the magician is what he is. Uh, so that's this coming Saturday, and also the a corny in the UK documentary of my 2014 excursion to the United Kingdom, and my live in London DVD, the unexpurgated. Uh, version of my live event at London's Leicester Square Theater. The DVDs are back on sale on the 16th as well. JimCornette.com and the Feather Bottoms are going to be making everybody happy again. The You know, Hotchkiss Feather Bottom has pleased more men than Jenna Jameson. He may not like the way you put that. Why wouldn't he? Oh, I kind of see what you mean. Well, you never know. There's different ways to please. And, you know, when you really think about it now, with modern ears, just how filthy Please Please Me was by the Beatles. Please please me, oh yeah, like I please you. What about Please 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 by James Brown? Oh, one of the greatest performances ever caught on video from the Tammy Show. You ever see that? Of course. Have you ever seen it? Have you ever, you ever drawn a breath? You ever combed your hair? Seen a grown man naked? You ever seen a <laughs> Turkish prison? <laughs> of, of course I've seen the Tammy show. And where do you think, back when uh, Stan Lane was a member of the Midnight Express, when the rock and roll or whoever the baby face was, would Ricky Morton, somebody would jump out of the ring, chase me around a ring post. I'd roll in while Bobby was hitting the ropes. I'd stand up. Bobby didn't see me coming. We'd have a double knockout. Down I'd go. Stan would come in, take my pulse, ascertain my physical condition. And then as I would <laughs> turn over and stand up. Now I see it. <laughs> he would try to help me up, but he would grab me by the fucking jacket, right? And as I would stand up, the jacket would go over my head, and I couldn't see, 
and I'd fucking swing around and swing the racket and almost hit him and I'd fall down and then I'd goddamn grab the jacket and I'd throw it off and throw it down and get mad at him and get mad at the referee and then he would take the jacket and he'd put it over my shoulders like James Brown the cape taking me off and right before I'd get out of the ring I'd turn around and throw the jacket off and I'd get mad at the referee again and he'd have to come back and perform the the cape cover again and and we would James Brown my way out of the ring on spot shows it took up some time kept people occupied you know everyone says that James Brown I mean and it's one of the great performances ever so I'm not taking anything away, but everyone says, oh, my God, the Rolling Stones couldn't follow that. The Rolling Stones are pretty fucking awesome that day, too. It's different. And Mick, well, but, and Mick Jagger's trying to be James Brown, which is hysterical. But here's the thing. That was inflated because the way they shot the Tammy show, it wasn't right. a, a, a concert. It was, oh, Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. Here'll be another $5,000. Hold on. Oh, no, wait a minute. No problem. I don't know who you are, and I don't give a shit. You keep calling me from this number. I don't want to buy anything, nor do I want to speak. Good day. I did say good day. Okay. So anyway, they didn't do it like a concert. No. They, They did it like a television shoot, and they changed crowds. So the crowd that James Brown appeared in front of was not even the same one that the Rolling Stones appeared in front of when they set up to do their set. It was just, I think probably Mick trying to create talk and buzz and attention. It's such a great film. I mean, just all these amazing bands and the barbarians. It's incredible. (laughs) And the barbarians didn't even do their best song. You know, their best song is multi. The drummer's name was multi. And he had one hand. He played drums with a hook. So it's a young guy with like a beetle haircut and a hook and for a hand. That just seems a little out of place with the whole teenage movement of the 60s. And he has a song called Multi, which is all about how he lost his hand and learned how to drum. And the rumor has always been that the actual band playing on Multi, the studio musicians, were the future band, Levon and the Hawks. Well, so get back to this guy's hook. Okay. So how is he gripping a drumstick with a hook? Well, I guess you can close the hook. I mean, it's like a du- Can dual- you close the hook? It's a dual-level hook, it seemed like. It was like a double hook that you could open and close. <laughs> well, Almost- it seems more like you'd need more like a claw than a hook. Well, maybe it's considered a claw more than a hook. Maybe- Wait a minute. What about What are we thinking about? Why did this stupid son of a bitch not think about just having a drumstick attached to his stump? And that would have eliminated the whole pride. He'd actually be a better drummer. You, not if he could cut his other hand off and not have the drumstick <laughs> attached to that, not necessarily. then he'd have been the best drummer in the world. Bonham, nobody, Buddy Rich, nobody would have had anything on this guy. He has, he'd be the Edward drumsticks of drumming. Not necessarily, because how many drummers played with their wrists? Usually you don't just bang with your arms. You usually have your, your hands going, your wrists. So if he has a hook, but he could still move his wrist around and rotate it. Or a claw. Well, no, just it gives them an opportunity to bang away. Look, imagine this: you got you've seen at the end of an arm stump before, so you got your arm stump right here, right? Okay. And then, and I bet you I could get the folks at Tom Drexler to do this. I know Mike Fox in the electric department be all over this, but maybe Josh in heating and air, or Chris, maybe they. But then DJ the plumber and Kato the the badass plumber. 
one of them could figure out how to put a a ball mechanism, a round mechanism on the end of the stump and then attach a drumstick to that so it would it would flip if the guy has limp wrists up and down then you're covered but it would go all the way around so he could swirl the drumsticks around and my god the drumming would be incredible you'd never be able to top that drumming the guy was a struggling musician i don't know where he's going to get the money to get this ball bearing wrist support thing you're well you got to spend here. money to make money <laughs> And, you know, I'm not surprised he was struggling. He didn't have a goddamn hand. So if he got that situated, turn it, uh, as Vince says, turn a negative into a positive. Cut the other hand off, make a match, get this apparatus, patent the design. And then not only will you be a great drummer, but also you can sell this apparatus and this, this technology to other one-handed drummers. You got to hear the song because it's kind of funny. He sounds like Chris Makepeace. Remember Chris Makepeace from fucking Meatballs and My Bodyguard? And I do not. I never made peace with Makepeace. You never saw My Bodyguard? I can't remember it. With Matt Dillon? It was like his first movie? Whatever. Oh, wait, were they in Gunsmoke in Dodge City? Okay, whatever. Yeah. But he has a funny voice. Well, funny-ish. But there's a spoken word part, so it's just like the music's playing, and then it's like, and then I lost my hand, and I had to learn how to do something new. And I learned how to play drums. <laughs> now, wait a minute. He wasn't a drummer before he lost his hand. He may have been. I, I wish I could play it on the air, but I can't due to various uh, issues. We have not licensed Does that song Does anybody still know who the fuck these people are? Would anybody even know? Oh, yeah. No, no, point? no. Doug Morris, uh, who's a, still a big muckety muck, was one of the writers of some of their songs. So, yeah, people know who they are still. Oh, he's a big muckety muck. People know who wrote their song. The publishing. What's he, never fuck with the publishers. Up? What is what is Doug Muckety Muck mucking up these days? Actually, he hasn't mucked up much. He's been one of the better executives in the history of the music industry. How much muck could a muck up muck if a muck up could muck muck? Muck, muck, muck! Hey, speaking of chickens. Yeah? The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, the greatest movie in the history of movies, is going to be on Svengoolie this Saturday night, July 16th, on MeTV, for those of you paying attention, keeping track, and Svengooli himself has alerted me that apparently I mentioned in the mailbag on the show and apparently they've brought this back because of my constant publicizing of The Ghost of Mr. Chicken has led to a groundswell of support for the movie and wanting the movie to be telecast and broadcast across the country again. They are going to do that on MeTV Saturday night, July 16th on Svengooli, 8 o'clock Eastern, 7 Central. Figure it out the rest of the way across the country to Hawaii and watch the greatest movie of all time. a boy, Sven! How does it feel, Mr. Irrelevant? Beyond the lack of <laughs> influence you I'm have on wrestling. I'm programming <laughs> horror movie hosts' fucking schedules now. I've, it, it, you sent me an email, it happened again, and now it's happening again. I'm talking right to you on Skype. I'm 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 dealing with my uh remodeling and I'm trending on Twitter because anytime somebody sees something ridiculous on a wrestling program, they all get on to talk about me and what I'm gonna say about it rather than what they were actually watching. So I continue to trend apparently on Twitter automatically uh, due to these due to these things. Well, let me ask you about one of them. Because I have something here. I think this was one of the reasons you started the trend the other day. And now you have become, 
beyond the post office ninja and the most irrelevant man who's relevant in wrestling, I think you're now the king of clickbait because every single website listens to the podcast and then just takes snippets of what you said. Yeah. <laughs> and that becomes a headline that drives people fucking mad. Jim Cornette likes cool weather. Run with that. There was an article on a uh, website, Sports Skeeta, and it was you saying, it was your hot take, it says here, from the Jim Cornette experience. I paid attention. Under one minute and 15 seconds, they, Moxley and Brody King, <laughs> went to the floor. I just said, fuck it. Moxley's the worst wrestler in the world, and I tried to fast forward to the finish, but AEW can't manage the time, so they almost ran over. And people lost their mind over you saying Moxley is the worst wrestler in the world. Can that be that unique of a comment? I mean, there are other people in the world that will watch Moxley wrestle, and what other what other impression can you come away from it? Um, same thing every time. Most of it looks phony. Some of it looks stiff and painful. Much of it looks dangerous. None of it makes any sense. Can we find a silver lining in this dark rain cloud? So I, I again, I'm I'm appreciative that everybody wants to know what I think about everything, but it's not like these are revolutionary comments because if you got two eyes, a brain and cognitive function, you can see the things that I'm pointing out. So it's not like I'm you know, discovering the goddamn what's lays beneath the curse of Oak Island here. I'm just looking at what I'm everybody's looking at and giving my thoughts. So I, I appreciate that they think that I'm revolutionary and groundbreaking, that I can see all these things that that nobody else can see. But I think you could probably see them if you just paid attention. And some people do see them, but they're just too fucking gutless and chicken to tell the truth. But when it comes to Moxley. Saying that he's not good or you don't like him or you don't see it, that's one thing. The worst wrestler in the world, that takes in a lot of wrestlers. Well, yes, but then, see, now you got to remember to grade on the curve because there are a lot of shitty wrestlers that nobody ever sees, right? And then there are more shitty wrestlers that some people see. But every once in a while, they do something good. But then there are people like the CEO of Moxley Plumbing, that they're on TV all the time and they're used in a prominent position. And there are some people who like that kind of thing and for the kind of thing, or for the kind of people who like that kind of thing, those are the kind of thing that those people like. But if that is what truthfully makes him stand out because he's on TV all the time. He's in a pushed position where you would think that the guy in that position should know what the fuck he's doing. And every time we, it's the same shit and it wasn't that good the first time. And it's worse now. Talk about drinking blood, do a promo that sounds great until you realize that he never really fucking made a point for three minutes. Go out there face-to-face, -face, trade a few blows that you're not trying to duck, hit the floor within a minute, rattle furniture around, do some more outlaw bullshit, pull out a thumbtack or two, and do some screwy finish where it's flattered in four o'clock because 
You choke the guy out with no fucking build to the climax whatsoever. Have you ever seen him do anything? Oh, and and occasionally there's a stuntman bump thrown in if it's some kind of garbage stipulation match. What have I missed about John Moxley's matches that I didn't just mention? Oh, I forgot. And the phony elbows and things where he thinks that nobody's paying any attention and he's just acting like he's hitting someone, but he's really not. But if you're up in the cheap seats, it might fool you if you're on the other side and from behind. Now I've mentioned everything. Yeah, I'm not a big Moxley fan. I'm not a big fan of it. Motherfucker, now the car me. Are they going to charge you too? Fuck off. There we go. Now I get to do one on the show. I'm not a big Moxley fan. That was him on the line. And I think with a lot of wrestlers today, and this is going to sound funny considering the CM Punk song, but I do think there's a cult of personality. Whether someone's talented or not in the ring, I think people latch on to the people and that's their person and they're going to be with them ride or die. And I think there's a lot of people like that with Moxley because sometimes I watch him and I can't understand how anyone sees very much in him. And I just watched him last night at Dynamite. I'll wait to talk about that because I know you haven't watched it yet. Another match where I thought his opponent really shined, actually. And people say that was Moxley doing that, but you'll see what I mean. <laughs> but I wouldn't call him the worst wrestler in the world. Now, I do think he's been overexposed for me because I certainly didn't not like him as much as I don't like him right now when he was on TV less. When he wasn't the AEW champion on TV every week. But I don't, he's one of those guys I don't get. And early on, I heard comparisons when he was Dean Ambrose. You heard the Terry Funk ones and the Roddy oh, Piper ones. I know, before I'd ever seen this guy, I heard all that. And then I saw him, I'm like, what the, that was part of the big letdown. I was built up to think, oh shit, this guy might be something that, this, eh? And, and, it, you would have thought that he would try to come into the company and make them more professional because he's worked for, whether you like it or not, folks, the biggest wrestling promotion in the world, and he's learned or should have learned, like others of those people have, something about major league television production and how to bring in an audience with a story and instead of this garbage indie shit and he couldn't wait to get out of there so that he could forget anything that he might have accidentally learned and go back to garbage wrestling. The guy idolizes the bank addicted drug robber. The guy goes out of his way to do these garbage wrestling shows where they have hardcore bullshit because that's his fetish and his fantasy. But yet still he's, allowing himself and promoting himself to be pawned off on the wrestling public as a real legitimate mainstream major league star in wrestling. And he's got the worst garbage indie outlaw habits of anybody this side of fucking Ian Rotten. So I think he's not only the shits, I think he's bad for the business and the impressionable youngsters that don't they don't know any better. They refuse to learn and they won't take legitimate advice from competent professionals, but they'll copy the fuck out of what he does because that's their same Mark minded philosophy about wrestling. And then they can say, but I'm just doing it because Moxley does it and he's a star. So that's why a guy like that 
is worse for the business than somebody who you don't ever see and is somewhere isolated in a little outlaw show and doesn't mean anything. But this guy is high profile and he's the shits and he encourages other wrestlers to be the shits. But I guess the question is, <laughs> are you the shits if the people like you? Can you well, both yes. be the shits and be pop? Can you be the shits and be popular? Both these things can be true because we just talked about McDonald's. Most of their food is the shits. I mean, it's if you find the 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 one place where the manager cares and the employees give a shit and you catch them when they've just cooked it, it otherwise it's a shits, but the lines are around the block because of the marketing, merchandising, and mass hysteria. And that's what I think has taken over with some of the mark marketing, merchandising, and mass hysteria for pockets, for fucking Moxley, for a variety of these pet projects that these the marks that are in charge of the wrestling business these days think are funny and cute. Well, as I said before, that was one of the many reasons that you trended over the last several days. I can't really specify what caused the last few of them. Well, I'm just, I'm Trendy McTrenderson. I'm Trendy, baby. And that, I mean, you know, I'm sorry. I'm so irrelevant that every time that the fucking stoplight on Main Street changes, people need to know what I think about it. So there you go. Well, speaking of things that people want to hear what you think about. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on here one second. Before we start about that, I got real quick. This was my show. Well, this is about you. Uh-oh. This is something you brought up. It's all your fault, and I'm being yelled at because of something that you brought up. Do you remember when you talked to me just last week about Minute Work, the band Minute Work, and yes. their... Their hit song, The Man Down Under, and blah, blah, blah. Well, they had a couple of hit songs in America, and I actually yeah. am a fan of theirs, and you hated them immensely, and yes, I remember talking to you about that. Because I heard that same song on the goddamn radio when I first got into business every 15 minutes, and it just... And we talked about Vegemite. Well, I have now someone taking me to task, and the... It's Chris from New Zealand... And the title, the subject matter on the email is, Up With This I Will Not Put. He sounds suitably upset. James, I sit here in my car or in the office listening to your eloquent rants on a variety of subjects ranging from music to landscaping to Kenny motherfucking Olivier to a certain former president of those United States. But to hear you disgrace and bemerch the good goddamn name of Vegemite is a bridge too fucking far, Cornette. Vegemite is a wonderful yeasty spread. King of all the breakfast spreads, I spit on peanut butter and I wipe my arse with jam. He made no comments about jelly. Nobody comments about jelly anymore. Who eats peanut butter in the morning for breakfast? Well, it's a... It's, I guess they do in New Zealand. Well, it's down under... When it's morning there, it's evening here, etc. He continues, always knew you damn Americans had no discernible palate, but this, this has confirmed that suspicion. In the name of Vegemite and Vegemite lovers everywhere, I hex thee. Thank you, your friend Chris. 
Oh, I thought it was going to be signed Danhausen. I hex thee. Well, Danhausen's not allowed down under. You always know you're in for a good one when it starts off calling you James. Yeah, then I was, I was, <laughs> re- so it's all your fault that I mentioned that I don't like Vegemite. We did get a lot of feedback about that from listeners down under, as you put it. And a lot of them don't like it either. That was what was interesting. I thought it was something that... Well, a lot of people were saying, well, you have to spread, just take a little bit of it and spread it very thin on the bread with a lot of butter. I'm like, well, goddamn, you're just describing cow shit then. Yeah, the the least of it you could eat with the most other shit that's palatable <laughs> to disguise the taste. That's the way you have this stuff. Well, well, what the fuck is... Why do it then? I, I've, I haven't figured that one out. Vegemite. I might or I might not. But what were you going to say? Were we going to talk about something today? Well, you're talking about Vegemite, and I was going to talk about the mighty new WWE series on A&E. There's a few of them, and you had me watch a couple of them. See, now you ask me to watch these off-brand modern wrestling shows with this bullshit, and I tell you, I said, let's watch the good stuff about the stars. You so I, you did is, to me what people you called me up and you said you have to watch it. There is something that will infuriate you. <laughs> you must watch it. <laughs> uh well not on the not on Undertaker. That was the infuriating part was on the rivals program, but AE is back. And here's the thing they can get better ratings on the AE network talking about and doing shows on wrestlers from 20 and 30 years ago than they can now with an entire new wrestling program. It's <laughs> This is the sad state of where we're at, but A&E has figured out from last year with the biography series and the Most Wanted Treasures, another thing, that the wrestling fans are starved for some content that they would want to watch about wrestlers that they like. And so they got to go back 15, 20, 25 years or more. And they debuted the season premiere two hours on The Undertaker. And I mean, you know, you're going to, we're going to talk about the, the fact that the WWE has uh, sway over these productions. They're cooperating. They have, they're giving footage and they're giving stars for the talking heads and for the panels and things but in return obviously history must be rewritten but i think if any if any of the fans the people the cult of cornet that listen to this program don't watch these shows to learn anything about wrestling history because that's why you listen to us but for the video and the chance to hear these guys talk currently about retrospective on their career the WWE production of the actual, the show, they do a great job producing things, editing things, the the comments, the video that they can find. They must have every minute of video of every show they've ever done minutely, you know, logged or elsewise they have people just pouring through it all the time because they can come up with a clip or a statement that matches what they want instantly. So they're well put together programs except for the truthfulness and veracity sometimes bingo but um but you know with this with undertaker it just underscored to me no pun intended no other human being on the face of the planet earth wrestler or otherwise could have 
could have been in that gimmick and it lasted 30 years. Would you agree with that, Brian Last? I would absolutely agree with that, yes. He looked the part even before he got the gimmick. If if you as you look at this show, you go, this just this fell together. Vince wanted to go all the way with it. There's been a few things in history he wanted to go all the way with because it was his idea and he loved it. Million Dollar Man, Undertaker. Um, you know, right now we're seeing it with Cody. Cody got the the uh the treatment from the start. Will it last 30 years? We don't know. But at the same time, this could have been fucking death warmed over. This could have been a rotten gimmick on anybody else. But Mark Calloway figured out a way. And I think one, the one thing that Bruce Pritchard said that maybe actually was close to being true on the program, on any of these programs, was Mark was kind of an old soul anyway. And even though he was in his 20s, he had that you know, that aura and just, and he wasn't a, you know, a wild man bouncing off the walls in the locker room. He was mature and he realized what he had to do to, to get to where he wanted to go once he got in the business. And so anyway, I love the original, the story about Buzz Sawyer and, and Mark's original training. Um, That's not even the only person Buzz Sawyer did that to that became a wrestling star. Buzz Sawyer did that to Magnum TA. Yeah. And then Terry Allen chased him across the country to Oregon. Instead of ripping off everybody that wanted to learn to wrestle and taking their money and blowing town, if Buzz Sawyer had just asked for 10% of the guys that he promised he would train, he would have made more money. Magnum TA, The Undertaker, and a number of others that I've heard, you know... Uh, smaller names, obviously, but Buzz was a real piece of shit. But finally, at least that got his taker's mind thinking and his foot in the door a bit. And then he meets Fritz. And you know what? I had never sat and looked at that before. But when he made that comment, Fritz von Erich sees him and says, book that kid in the sportatorium this week. He looks like David. At that point, he kind of looked like David, didn't he? He looked like a mix between David and Mike because his hair was a little more red. Yes, but tall and had the kind of Von Erich facial features. So that was, but then they put a mask on him and made him Texas Red, which was the name that Red Bastine had used in Dallas, like what, 15 years previously. Hey, can I stop you right there? Yeah. Obviously, he's a big guy. I mean, he still is, but you see him when he's young and he's getting some size and he's a big guy. But even with that said, how intimidating must it be to have your first match against Bruiser Brody? In Dallas, in the Sportatorium, on top of all that. Um, and, I, you know, looking in hindsight, obviously, when Fritz says, and I don't know who was booking then, um, but when Fritz says, use this guy, they probably figure, what the fuck? And Mark, at that time, he was barely out of his teens, and he had, you know, just kind of a plain look facially, so they probably figured, well, since Percy Pringle, who that was a kick also that Percy managed Mark in his very first match and then later on came became Paul Bearer, they probably just figured, well, we'll give Brody some big guy to beat up, put a mask on him, call him Texas Red. That's a name that's been recognized, and the guy will have heat because Percy's his manager, and that continues that story. They had no idea they'd ever see this guy again, much less he'd be one of the biggest stars in wrestling. 
so that's why they did that. But boy, it had to be, you know, he had to be shitting uh, with Brody. But then South Africa through the Simpsons, I'd forgotten that he even went and worked in South Africa. Was that, was it there or Japan? He was Punisher Dice Morgan. That may have been Japan, but you know the other thing? Seeing Steve Simpson in this thing? In retrospect, he's not as skinny as I remember him being, considering a lot of the things we've seen in the last few years. I was yeah, surprised no, by that. All the guys that in the 80s, people used to well, he's so small. How could he make it? And now they're like giants. Um, but it 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 really started coming together when Mark went to Memphis and they uh that was February or early 89. And I I got a kick of the clip of him working with Brian Lee on television because Brian, of course, was half brothers with Ron and Don Harris, and they were all friends with Mark. And at one time, all of them lived in Nashville. And that was an example of, of uh, he beats Jerry Lawler for the unified world title in Memphis at that time, which was the USWA and world class and et cetera. AWA. AWA. Unofficially. Yeah. Unofficially. Lawler would bring guys in like that. And because he had 52 shows a year in every town. So he would bring guys in, put them with a manager. I think that was Ronnie P. Gossett that was managing Mark at that point. And he would put them over to let the people know that, oh my God, this guy is for real. And then they would separate and the guy would work through all the other baby faces on the card and beat them. And then Lawler would come back at the end and, you know, and win in the end. And that's the way he did with Kamala. Kamala came in and beat Lawler flat and then beat everybody else. Then Lawler came back, had the program with him and came out on top of that. And you would get three, four months out of that. They didn't go this long with Mark because the territory was down and he wasn't Kamala, but Lawler was a master at doing that because he could have some kind of match that made sense with anybody. He would just do whatever the other guy knew how to do. And that's why the pattern of a lot of Lawler's matches was the same, but they were always different because he was more doing the other guy's shit than he was his own. And then we get to the skyscrapers. And I appreciate Taker plugging me. I I can't believe he didn't mention Dutch's. He didn't mention Dutch mantel in this program or they i should say they probably edited it out but dutch deserves as much credit as i do because when sid got hurt we've told this story i was obviously watching memphis tv even though i wasn't there and i knew they had this guy who was seven feet tall the master of pain so i called dutch and if dutch had said eh, i don't know about this guy then that would have ended it there but dutch said hey He's green, but he's tall, and he's a great kid, and he wants to learn, and he won't give you any trouble. Boom, that's what we need. And then Terry Funk came up with the name Mean Mark Callis because Mark Calloway, you know, didn't sound particularly uh, imposing. And the unfortunate thing was we had to tag him with Spivey because that was the team. And does Spivey look like death or what? He sounds like death, too. Good Lord. But that was the thing is, and Spivey spent this whole, <laughs> this whole show complaining about how WCW disrespected them, didn't do anything with them. The skyscrapers. Yeah, Sid were punctured positioned. his lung. Yes. 
Well, and the skyscrapers had been positioned as the top heel team, even though they were the shits. You couldn't have a fucking match with them. Because I've ta- I've mentioned this before, Sid looked like a million dollars, right? He shouldn't sell. But Spivey was just a big fucking fleshy lump that never took bumps, had two left feet, couldn't fucking work. He was a badass tough guy in real life, but he looked like a goddamn schmo and he was trying to work stronger than Road Warrior Animal. So now you got two guys that won't sell anything, including the eyes. And they couldn't bump, and they couldn't do spots, and they couldn't feed, and they couldn't fucking get any heat because the people stood up and gave Sid a standing ovation every time he tagged in because he looked so great and he didn't know how to be a heel. Well, the other thing was sometimes when Sid wasn't in the match, the fans would start chanting, we want Sid or tag in Sid. Remember we did that watch along of the Great American Bash that one or one pay-per-view. 89. Yes. And the people, we want Sid whenever Spivey's in there. So the point is Spivey used this as a chance to bitch. The deal was we got a replacement skyscraper who was green and was tall and was a great kid. And then there's Spivey, and that was the, the, that team had no appeal whatsoever compared to the appeal of Sid and Spivey, because at least people like Sid. So the consensus was amongst the booking committee, of which I was there at the time, that we get what we get out of the skyscrapers, but that we wanted to do something with mean Mark Callis long term because he was young and a fucking good person, and you could see he had talent. But then, Flair quit as Booker because of Heard, and then about a month later, I quit the booking committee, and Kevin Sullivan had been a fan of Mark's. That's why I believe he ended up being broken loose from the team and put as a single with Paul Lee as his manager to try to give him some, you know, somebody that could talk for him and some heat because Paul Lee was more already established. Yeah, they left out out a really big part of the story, you know, because they showed the part where Spivey talked about beating up the Road Warriors. But they left out the part where during the pay-per-view match, which was the street fight, Spivey no-showed. So he had Mike Enos under a mask. Yes. Teaming with Mean Mark, the new skyscraper. So no one gave a shit about this team. Against the road warriors. Well, and besides that, he acted like he said it, because Spivey, I guess, is delusional and thinks he was a badass in his younger days, but he wasn't going to fucking kick the shit out of Animal and Hawk both together unless they were selling for him. It was an angle. It was an angle. That's why they were laying there letting Spivey hit him with hit him with chairs. Now, did he hit them too hard? Probably. And was that one of the reasons why he no-showed the match where they were going to get their hands on him next? Probably. And he can claim it was, I was upset at WCW, so I just went back to Japan. Well, we didn't miss you. We really didn't. Do you remember, um, do you remember what Mean Mark Callis' finishing maneuver was when he became a single? Oh, goddamn, was it the heart punch? The heart punch. The heart punch. Um, Because he's not dropping elbows off the top rope at seven feet tall. But see, here's the thing. By that time that they made him a single and put him with Paulie and everything, and then the famous quote, Ole comes in. Heard puts Ole in charge of everything again. And Ole didn't see anything in him and didn't want to give him a raise and ran him off. And that's where Ole is the one who said, 
Nobody's ever going to pay to see you wrestle. They wouldn't mention. Did they mention Ole's name or did oh, they yeah. not? No, Mark. That, yeah. Uh, the Undertaker Mark, yeah. absolutely mentioned Ole Anderson's name. I couldn't remember whether Ole's name was banned on WWF approved programming or whatever. But anyway, so then obviously Paul Lee just calls Bruce Pritchard because Paul back then, before he'd even become a manager in the business, he was on the phone with everybody like he always has been trying to figure out some way to get something over on somebody. So Paulie said, okay, they don't want this kid. I'll call Bruce. And Bruce arranged the meeting with Vince. And <laughs> Mark told a story about Paul taking him out in New York, which is Paul's gimmick. He did the same thing for me, even though I didn't want to go. But let's happy. Heyman is the best talking head on any of these programs. He is fantastic. And whatever can be said about somebody to paint them in the best light or to tell the story uh, most succinctly and effectively, Paul can give you the quote. He's fucking amazing. And I would love to see him on all these programs. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, on the other side of the fence of Talking Heads, I know Bruce has to be Vince because Vince won't do these shows. And I know he has to speak for the company. But does he still have to act like that people gave a shit about Brother Love? This has been, he used it, and it's it's not a put on. And I'm not even knocking Bruce now. I am knocking Brother Love because that was fucking bloody awful. But he used to, from the time I went up there 25 years ago, he would tell Stories about how Brother Love did this and was over with that, and boy, we had a great match, or we did this promo, or what. When everybody mentions all, and I'm not doing this out of managerial jealousy, I promise you. And me and Bruce work together in other aspects, and that's just fine, but has anybody ever said that Brother Love was a great manager, or was Brother Love another thing that Vince did to make wrestling in the late 80s, early 90s look like a fucking clown show, in my opinion. Well, remember, Brother Love was barely a manager, only for a brief period of time with The That's Undertaker. That's what I'm saying. He had a talk show on Superstars every Saturday morning. And But from that, Bruce said, well, he and The Undertaker were perfect because it was the yin and yang. You had Brother Love in white and The Undertaker in black. I get maybe Brother Love could have done the funeral service and The Undertaker could have prepped the body. I don't know what... But anyway, Bruce did love Brother Love. We got to say that. And he is awful in these things because he comes across as disingenuous. He looks like a slob. Let's not even, you know. Oh, now come on. Now, no, no, seriously. If you're going to be interviewed, shave your neck. Physical appearance. Shave your neck and button up your shirt. You're going to be interviewed on TV. He can't slob. button a shirt unless it's custom made. Have you seen the size of that neck? Nevertheless. Uh, on Undertaker's WWE debut, did you, he walked faster. I say I couldn't. I didn't remember that. Also, he was he hadn't got it down yet because that walking that slow out in front of a building of five, ten, fifteen thousand people is counterintuitive, as they say, to what everybody else normally does. You know what though? It also helped once he had Paul Bearer in front of him because that's yeah, the pace. <laughs> it set the pace. Paul wasn't going to fucking jog to the ring. I'll tell you that. I love Percy, but. So so Brother Love chose to stay home and produce and work in the office, and they found Paul Bearer, luckily, to take up that slack. Wasn't uh, he fired right after that, actually? I think so. 
that didn't come out in the, in this piece. Okay. But yeah, I think that's when he went to Dallas. Or when? No, no, no. Well, was it right before or right afterwards? It was right, right before. It was right. No, it was right afterwards. Yeah. It, was, it was. Well, after. it was. Well, it was the cart before the horse. He got. This was right. He was brother love with Undertaker right before he got fired. Yes. So then, suddenly, they jumped ahead from they found Paul Bearer, which was what somewhere in late 1992, to the creation of Kane. It's amazing they skipped right over the death and resurrection of the Undertaker. <laughs> well, I mean, they had a little footage there in some of the highlights, but they didn't dwell on the fact that, you know, he was gone for a while. And I am forever mortified. That's the only Undertaker match I ever didn't enjoy being involved in. Because I got to tell you, the entrance... Everything that everybody said about the Undertaker's entrance was true. If you're standing in, and I've stood in major arenas in this fucking country, NBA arenas, 20,000 seat buildings, sold out, slap dab full, and you stand there and all of a sudden the lights go out and the people go, and the bong hits, bong, and they fucking blow, and then the lights go spinning around. When they had the lightning, that was cool. And here comes that music, the funeral dirge. And I've, st I've got goosebumps on my arms and my legs now, sitting here in my office, thinking about it, because that was one of the most coolest wrestling moments was just Undertaker making that entrance and the people being so captivated by it. And then the match was made from that point. It was, I mean, a lot of guys have had great entrances where they, dance or they sing or they do cartwheels or whatever the fuck but this was the most minimalist entrance of a guy ever in wrestling barely moving barely no expression slow music and everybody was tongues were hanging out because of the way he built that aura and so that was that was amazing. As, you know, and the only one, as I said, that I ever didn't want to be involved in was that fucking, what was Survivor Series 93? No, Royal Rumble 94. Royal Rumble 94 is what it was. Every heel on the card just comes out and jumps Undertaker and 13 of them beat him up and put him in the casket and close the lid to win the casket match. Including the great Kabuki and Tenru. Yes, <laughs> who just were on the show as guests, and suddenly they're, oh, come out and help us kill The Undertaker. And then not only that, but then on the screen, he's seen as he floats up to heaven, and I'll be back. And it was, that was too phony and too fake and too bullshit, and I just tried to hide behind the ring post. But in every other case, you wanted to be involved with Taker. And they didn't and, mention uh, that too much, and they didn't mention his return, The Undertaker versus Undertaker feud with his former friend Brian Lee. Well, thank God they left that out. As a matter of fact, I think that Bruce, Bruce, events even laughed at it at the at the Hall of Fame, like even a fake Undertaker. But when they when they got to Kane, things really picked up because also part of the deal is they can't really talk about the first five years of the Undertaker streak in the WWF because remember it's Giant Gonzalez, Jimmy Snuka. They showed the, these highlights, but not at length, but those were some of the worst matches ever, and it wasn't Taker's fault. It was Vince was still booking 
the undertaker as a giant for those first several years. And, and that's the way he booked giants against other giants. And then taker got to be a made man by the 96, 97 period and the attitude era starting and takers become more important and gotten over more. He could be more of the, the undertaker he wanted to be lose a little bit of the, the makeup and bring more of himself into it. And like he said on the show, show that big guys can still be athletic. And that's when, you know, he really started being able to perform and get away with it and had more quality opponents coming into the company. Because 92, 93, 94, 95, there, it was Yoko that could give Taker a good fight. But there was no Mankind, Mick Foley. There was no fucking... It wasn't the golden period of Undertaker yet, and that started with Kane. And they showed... I, I never even knew there was a camera in that studio when we were doing that, just me and Glenn in the ring. And now it's been on Twitter, it's been on a home video, and now they put it on A&E. Me teaching him how to do the Michael Myers sit-up. With... I, and it's... Some people may be wondering why that needs to be taught. Why isn't that something he could just pick up on? Why is it more well, difficult than people realize? And I was actually, I was going to say, it's kind of, I hate that they had the camera there when we were doing shit to, cause that's like showing the, the, you know, the magician revealing how he gets the rabbit out of his fucking hat or whatever. But it obviously I didn't need to teach Glenn Jacobs how to do a sit up. But the Michael Myers sit-up that Undertaker was adopting is distinct for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it's best done spooky, like in the movies, if you don't move any other part of your body besides your waist. It's like your waist is on a hinge. And with the arms at the sides and the head in the same position, you just got to come up like your waist is on a hinge, and as soon as you get to the top of the sit-up, then you do the look to the left. And it's all in two motions. Up, look. Arms don't move. Feet don't come off the ground. If your feet come off the ground during the sit-up, it kind of makes it look more human and less supernatural. So that's all I was showing him. But, you know, anyway, they had cameras running everywhere back then, I guess. And in that vein, why does everybody now, even the guys, have to say storyline instead of feud or rivalry or something that would sound less fake? Because it's pounded into their head. Um, and then Undertaker and Mankind. The, the best segment of this show, and they spent a lot of time on it, was the Hell in a Cell match. Going, I mean, it's been gone over a million times, going back and forth over it again, but still with the comments from the guys, and you see the footage, and and the also Undertaker having a bad ankle was, I'd forgotten about that. We were worried about that going into the match, and at the time, and nobody even know with all the other shit going on. But you see, when Taker got crawled down through the top of the cell that had given way and dropped into the ring and landed on that bad ankle. He hops and limps one time and quits selling it. Never sold it again. And that was a, a worry we had. And also the bump off the top of the cage and Mix talked about this. 
we didn't, I didn't know it was going to happen. I don't think anybody but Vince and maybe a, a Pat or Bruce, because he was on Gorilla, um, maybe they knew, but nobody had any idea what it was going to look like. And, and I think that's the way guys passed shit by Vince a lot. You know, the, the click still says Vince approved the curtain call. I think a lot of times somebody will give Vince a, the gist of something like, I think maybe if we're climbing up there, he can knock me off the side of the cage. Well, that doesn't sound like he'll hip toss me off the top of the cage, 25 feet through the announcer table, whatever. Sometimes people give Vince part of the information and he says, okay. And then they extrapolate, but nobody knew that that was going to look like that. And then the second bump through the cage, as we've talked about before, the the cage was not supposed to break that clean away like that on that choke slam. And that's the one that knocked Mick out. And that's why Terry Funk had to ad lib because everybody in the back at the monitor at Gorilla was like, fuck, is it over? He can't. What are we going to do? We've got time. What's going on? And Terry just. I don't remember anybody telling him to. He just was smart enough to go, well, I'll buy him some time. And, you know, that's um, by the t- a lot of people also have forgotten. And if we'd had any idea, like I said, what was going to go on beforehand, this wouldn't even have been done. Cactus ran out in the match after the Hell in a Cell to interfere in the finish. Whose match was it? I can't even remember now title match i don't remember rocker austin i would think but that was the thing is when we put the show together we knew the that the finish of hell in a cell we knew who was going to win but we didn't have any concept of the shape that mick foley was going to be in afterwards and to the point where i've mentioned when he didn't remember doing the thumbtack spot he asked me afterwards did we do the tax And they had pulled the tooth out of his nose and everything, but because that next match went in and nobody had time to process what the fuck had gone on, that that title match was still counting on Mick Foley or Mankind interfering, running out, and I was trying to get them to to not do it because, if, if for nothing else, just because of Mick's health, we weren't still sure whether or not that he was all right. And as well, it made it look, you know, kind of weak. If after all of that, the guy comes back out and runs in another match, but the match had already prepared and it was, the live show was ongoing and they said, okay, have him go do it. If he says he can do it, he can do it. But that was, I was trying to talk about it, but no, you've done enough. They don't need to see you again tonight, but the team was in need. Anyway, um, and like I said, you know, they they talked about the streak and they showed the clips of the first several. Um, but it was the big thing that they talked about and even Taker kind of, you know, they don't criticize Vince and his decisions much, but I think everybody here realized, no, that shouldn't have ended. Vince, temporary insanity one day and decided to do it and it can't be undone. But that never should have ended. That was a massive fuck up. But um, 
But Mark became the Undertaker, and the Undertaker became Mark, and it became a kind of a, a combination of the two, which is what every great wrestler and every great gimmick that has had longevity and success at a high level has to do, and he did it in 30 years. And here's another thing. People would say, well, Flair, this will be 50 years this year since he had his first match. But he was... And I'm not talking about his ability or what he could have done. I'm talking about has anybody else ever avoided bad booking and heat with the office where they try to bury you or make you look bad or just periods of time where you didn't have a top spot over 30 years? Has anybody ever come in at a main event level, never been diminished, never been used as even a middle card guy, and 30 years later, with almost no defeats on in high-level matches, and the one that he did suffer, everybody hated it and didn't want to see it happen. Yeah, it's nice to see everyone now admit that was wrong. Yeah. And they said so, in the thing, oh, he had to do it to get someone over, to get a young guy over, and then yeah, I, oh, so he did it with Brock. What? Yeah. No. So I'm, I'm, but I'm just wondering, has anybody ever equaled that in the wrestling business at, at, at that, think of a star that hot, that big, drawn that much money and then spread it out over 30 years. And the only time he was never on top was when he was purposely by choice, not actively wrestling because he was rehabbing injuries or just, he, it wasn't needed. You only you only needed the undertaker when he's in the main event of a big show. And I mean, you know, you can go gorgeous, George, you can go Thez. Thez spent time, especially later in his career, just working preliminary matches in a lot of places and, and some lower paying territories because of his divorce divorces situation. I can't, I can't think of another guy, 30 years, main event, start main event, finish, never diminished or booked badly. We can say the losing the streak was bad booking, but I'm talked about being made a underneath guy, change his name, give him a goofy gimmick, whatever the case. He may be unique in, in all of the history of wrestling. I think so, because it's two different things. One is how many guys came into a territory for a number of years and never went below main event. You know, or even if he wasn't in the main event, you never thought of him as mid-card or anything like that. A main event caliber wrestler the whole run. And then the second thing is, who had 30 years? Nobody. It's the most remarkable run of all time. And you on a territory level, Lawler is the only one I can think of that would fit on a territory level. And he started in the, in the territory because it was his home as a preliminary guy, went away, came back. In uh, ironically, in '72, the same year as Flair started wrestling, and in 1972 was setting attendance records in Memphis, and set more in '73, '74, and is still a name today. But there's no wrestling business to support him in Memphis. But he at at that at a territory level, Lawler had it. Who else had it in a territory? Bruno. No. He went away, came back, and never left the main event. Well, but at the same time, not for th he he 
maybe debuted. For 30 years, no. For 30 years, no. Yeah, he debuted in Madison Square Garden in, what, 1960? He was retired uh, in 19, or he retired in 1987. Well, that was second time. And so that's 26 years to the second, into the second retirement. So I'm not saying he wasn't over. It was, I'm saying. When the other thing is, you know, minus the American badass years, it's a gimmick. I mean, Lawler wasn't always the king. The early years, he hadn't been the king yet. And really the king wasn't a gimmick as much as a nickname. Yes, he'd wear a crown or a robe or whatever, but the king is like the, you know, the nickname, the undertaker, that was a gimmick. That was a persona that you had to get into. So I, they, I, and I don't like the word character. So I will say again, I think this show proved if we needed any, that undertaker was the greatest gimmick in the history of the wrestling business. A lot of gimmicks got hot and then burned out quick. Cause that's all they were was a gimmick. But, Mark took this and made it a person and then got it over to the point where it was bulletproof. Minus a decision like ending the streak. Yeah. Or who he ended it to. Is this also the best example of the best of Vince McMahon's booking and the best of his creativity? Well, I I don't know because here's the, it's not an example of Vince McMahon's booking because he came up with an idea for a guy's gimmick and he wanted that pushed and he oversaw the push of it. But there were a lot of people, including Mark himself that had input into the booking along those 30 years. And so it wasn't like Vince was just saying, I'll take care of Taker and you guys do everybody else. So the, the direction was given by Vince as captain of the ship, but a lot of people were steering the wheel and stoking the furnace. It's so weird now because, you know, we've heard in documentaries and on podcasts and different things, everyone talk about everything. We never heard The Undertaker until, what, a couple of years ago? We never yeah. heard him at all. Yeah. And then we heard that Hall of Fame speech, which was the beginning of his spoken word career, it seems. I think he's doing another thing SummerSlam weekend. But it's weird now, like you talk about Hell in a Cell, we never heard The Undertaker's view on that. We never heard The Undertaker's view on any of these things. So, you know, a documentary, if it's good, is good. But with The Undertaker, it's especially interesting because we never heard his take. He kept, it's not even kept it a gimmick, he kept quiet. So you always had to assume what he was thinking. And when you actually start hearing him talk, and you're like, wow, this is a really smart guy. He understood what he was doing. And now we finally get to hear him. It's really cool. Well, and riddle me this, great one. How much does it have to do with the fact that this was a great gimmick that was over and stayed over? How much does it have to do with the fact that Mark knew how to do the gimmick? And part of it was an undertaker is not a man of many words. And every time that he knew that if people saw the under the man behind the undertaker the human being that it would diminish the aura that it would hurt that you could because of his performance you could lose yourself in that guy maybe the undertaker that i'm watching in that ring that i'm seeing do that shit that's going whatever but if you heard him sit down and talk like a human You'd really, okay, but he's really human. 
Everybody knew he was human, but nobody could prove it. Nobody heard it. Nobody saw it. You could lose yourself in it. And that's uh, one of the big reasons why the gimmick worked is because Mark worked it. And Mark didn't put himself in positions where it would be exposed or the aura would be diminished or they'd poke a hole in it. And the fact that I'm calling him Mark now instead of Taker is actually something that even the boys didn't used to do. Now he's come out as Mark Calloway. But everybody called him Taker, especially in public in front of anybody. It was, he protected that thing. He put the work in to what he had to do to get what he needed out of it. And I wish, you know, that a lot of guys these days that get good gimmicks that they could do something with if anybody believed them, and the furthest thing from what they're trying to do is make anybody believe them. I thought one of the coolest things in the documentary, now that we're past the point where we have to believe The Undertaker, was him and his mom. I, they would yeah, intercut yeah. to that all throughout the documentary, and an example of a mother who loves her son and wishes he had done anything else other than become a wrestler. Yeah. But it was really nice to see. I actually thought that was uh, really cool to see him discuss his career with his mom. And and all of the uh, production people from Connecticut, they had to give his mom subtitles because she got that Texas twang. She had to sign a Legends deal. Uh, that's true. And, and <laughs> autographed pictures of, of Mama Undertaker coming out soon. Mama Taker. Mama Taker. But uh, where are we going to take it from here, Brian? Well, Jim, why don't we think a little bit more about these scenes with the Undertaker and his mom at the kitchen table? Because I'm sure this scene has been happening for many, many years, since he was a small boy. And I would have to think many times a healthy breakfast was on the table as well. That's right, because a good old-fashioned Texas mother gonna get her kids started off to school or to work or to wherever, to play basketball, whatever the case, with a healthy, good-tasting breakfast. And you know... In the old days, you had to eat the sugar and the carbs and the junk and the additives and all that stuff to get that good-tasting cereal that you love, but no more. You don't have to do that anymore, Brian. You know why? Because of our friends at Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon has come up with the magic formula to have zero grams of sugar, but 13 to 14 grams of protein and only four or five net grams of carbs in each serving. Low-carb, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and only 140 calories a serving, but it's not taste-free, nor is it cost-free. You're going to have to pay for this shit, but it's worth it. I'm telling you, they have changed the game. The sugary cereals are no more. They have also spent time to perfect the crunchy texture that you like from your cereal. This stuff ain't soggy. Well, if you put milk on it, it's going to get there eventually, but eat it quickly. And they've developed an astounding variety of flavors that always hit the spot. Whether it be the spot in your stomach, the spot in the toilet, the G-spot, whatever spot you got, they're going to hit it. The spot in your stomach they're talking about, this is food. Well, it, it, that's right, it's food. And it's food for thought that you'll be packed with protein. It's a great healthy snack. There's a flavor for everybody. You got the classics, the cocoa, the fruity, the frosted, the peanut butter. You can mix the cocoa and peanut butter, and boy, howdy, you know you're getting almost close to something that's trademarked there, but it tastes good. Or you got the cult favorites like blueberry muffin, maple waffle, honey nut, the indulgency, the indulgency of you with cookies and cream and cinnamon roll. Wait a minute. 
When did they stick cinnamon roll in there? How have I not heard about this? God damn it, I got to have some of that. Anyway, go to magicspoon.com slash Jim right now and grab a custom bundle of cereal. You can get whatever you want. They're not just going to send you something. You pick it. They'll send you some good stuff. And if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. Of course, then later on, someone will come to your home and potentially vandalize your mailbox over this. But it's a small price to pay. And at least we know you're an asshole because you don't like the magic spoon. But you can get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal, as we said, at magicspoon.com slash Jim. Use the code Jim. Save $5 off at checkout, off that custom bundle. And then enjoy the magic spoon. Take your magic spoon and stick it in the cereal and stick it right up your nose or in your mouth or however you eat your cereal. And it's going to be delicious. And... Nothing bad for you in here, except goodness. If goodness is bad for you, then that then the magic spoon is bad for you. But if goodness is wrong, I don't want to be right. All right, well, let's move on that note. By the way, it's National Nude Day, apparently, on Twitter, it says. I just said that word earlier. I know, that's why Dude, I think it's I was trying to- amazing. Immediately after I say a word, they make it national <laughs> that word day. That's how trendy I am on tw- on Twitter. Trendy McTrenderson. Here's what I have right now on Twitter. What's happening? Number one, the latest updates on the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Number two, trending Jim Cornette. Uh-huh. Number three, only on Twitter, trending hashtag national nude day. And then four is COVID-19 news and updates and... uh so I'm more irrelevant than the war in the Ukraine, but I'm more relevant than the other stuff. Seemingly so. And speaking of the other stuff, you had me watch more than one A&E special this week. The Undertaker right. documentary and another of, I guess, the first episode of a new series, WWE Rivalries. Well, it's Rivals, not Rivalries. Is that what it is? Is it's it Rivals? rivals. Oh, I don't it's remember. Rivals. It didn't, make, it didn't make that big an impression on me. I knew there was a rivalry of some sort. Well, there was, there was certainly was. Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart talk about a rivalry. And I told you to watch this because you would love parts of it. And one thing would make your head explode or one thread of thing in the show. Did, do you know, can you tell me what part that I thought that you would think was very good about this program? What part I thought was very good? Yes. No, I don't know what part you thought. <laughs> was. What part did you think I thought would be very good? I th- hearing Sean and Brett and some of the guys that were there at the time talking just about what was happening, I enjoyed. Because it wasn't a work. They really had issues. They talked, and especially Brett talked about it, and even Sean talked about it. Sean apparently has somewhat renovated his personality from those days. But you got to hear them talk about how they actually felt about things and each other. And Undertaker said, you know, one of his lines was, boy, it made it interesting to go to work. It did. That's the way we all felt because we never knew what the fuck was going to happen. It was, that's, that was the chaos of the WWF that made me long to get the fuck out of there because it was constantly some bullshit. 
with the personalities that Vince had allowed to run rampant. And, but as a result, you never knew what was going to happen. You know, you go to Hartford, Connecticut, they're going to have a fight in the fucking locker room. You go to, where was it? Massachusetts dipshit's going to lose his smile, you know, whatever. So it was, it was quite different than most normal wrestling atmospheres. When you had two guys at that level that really weren't going to fucking work together, like each other, whatever the fuck. Here is my issue with this program. Freddie Prinze Jr. ain't bad. He's got a nice voice. I understand he's the host, but why did they have a panel, a dimly lit panel in a dark room that was almost never used? And there was a girl on the panel, and I don't think she ever spoke on camera. That was Tamina Snooker. Maybe now we know why she almost never spoke. But but it, what was the panel for? Kevin Nash, Kofi Kingston, JBL, and Tamina. I can understand Nash. He was involved on the periphery. He was in the social circle. Bradshaw was... He's their boy. Whenever they need a friendly voice on one of these things, they always get him because he'll say whatever the company line is. Well, but also Bradshaw was just coming in to the company at that point, but Kofi Kingston had nothing to do with this, and I don't know what Tamina had, but they didn't use the panel anyway. I thought that was a little odd. Yeah, nothing they, against Freddie Prinze Jr., because I guess for what he was doing, he was fine, but that entire thing was unnecessary to the actual story and everything else, and it added nothing to it. It lent nothing to the storytelling. They should just make the documentary about the feud and not add this unnecessary element. Yeah, and I don't mind Prince as the host or the voiceover guy or the person who ties the narrative together, but the panel was just distracting. And of course, since they're WWE authorized, they get tons of talents for talking heads. And did you, Bruce actually said, you know, right around the early 90s, we started featuring guys that could actually wrestle. What a fucking statement. What were you doing beforehand? Featuring plumbers? No, that's AEW's gimmick. He's the worst. I saw, I'll say this again. He's the worst on all of these things. You know, they used to, when they put out the DVDs, there were two guys, Bruce Pritchard and the Brooklyn Brawler, that just always said things that were ridiculous. Bruce would say them in a very disingenuous way because he's trying to sell people on these bullshit ideas the same way Vince does. But the Brooklyn well, that, Brawler that's... would just repeat the company line, but... With these things, that's the problem with Bruce. He's the guy the company picks to go out there and do these things, and he comes across as being incredibly dishonest at everything he says. Well, that's because, like Vince, I said earlier, Vince won't do these things. Every once in a while, you get a comment, but he ain't going to sit down there for a few hours, and Bruce will say whatever. He's Vince's surrogate, and that's the company you know, line or company, you know, story on it. And we're going to see in a little while that this, this, this bit him in the ass bad. Baghdad Bob. But, uh, but what I liked about this program, besides Sean and Brett speaking about each other was the action footage. And uh, I mentioned before, not only the editing and the production, but just the footage, it blows what we're seeing today away. That's why these shows are popular because people can look back and go, shit, that looked like grown-ass adult men beating the shit out of each other. Or the people were in the arenas were excited, jumping up and down, the chaos in the ring, the guys knew. It, it's, it's just so obvious now that this stuff today, almost nobody 
looks like that and works like that. And the, the action is not that. And, you know, the more they do these historical retrospectives, the more that the modern product pales in comparison. And it's just, it's just visual. You can just see it. You can see what the difference is when, when you go 20 years without seeing this stuff and you're watching the new stuff, you kind of get used to that. And then you go back and you see some of these highlights. You go, oh, holy shit, no wonder. It, I just got reminded. Anyway, um, Bruce mentioned that the first ever 60-minute time limit draw in the Ironman match was unprecedented. That had never happened before. They actually had had our broadways in the history of the WWWF. And not only that, they, Bruno and Pedro went 75 minutes, allegedly at Shea Stadium. Some some people said they padded the time, but they ran to curfew. Did he say in wrestling history or in WWE history? Well, he didn't say. He did. See, that's the thing. It was glossed over. He's like, well, the first ever 60-minute draw with no falls scored. That was unprecedented. Well, if, if you're talking about modern WWF, yes. If you're talking about professional wrestling anywhere else, that's ridiculous. So it's kind of one of those gray area statements. I loved it where Michaels, as soon as he won the belt, he started his diva phase. Um, just random notes here. Lawler again mentioned the sign that he and Jerry Jarrett had on the wall beside their desk, or Jerry's actually at his house, Jerry Jarrett's, personal issues draw money. And I can only imagine that if if they had been willing to work in a complimentary fashion together, I'm not talking about in the ring. They were professionals in the ring. They didn't really beat each other up. It wasn't they. Well, no, I'm I'm talking about if it if they both Brett and Sean had been willing to control themselves and work in the same place instead of against each other on the live promos, some of the angles, or Sean no showing or whatever. I believe they could have drawn a ton of money because the people were had already figured out they really didn't like each other, and they were uh, reinforcing that opinion on every promo they did on television. It just they didn't get... Remember, WrestleMania 97 was supposed to be a rematch. It wasn't. They They didn't have as many matches on pay-per-view as they would have had if Sean had been professional and not a fucking pill addicted prick, and if they'd been able to work together with each other in a complimentary fashion to set up the matches that they had that were great, they just didn't have that many pay-per-view matches because you couldn't ever get them both on the same page at the same time. Yeah, they had good matches earlier. You know, there was a ladder match earlier. There was a match at the Survivor Series right after Brett won his first title in 92. But when you say they, I mean, even the documentary talked about it. Brett was always willing to play ball, even when things were going down, and we'll talk about Montreal, when Brett was told to negotiate with WCW by Vince McMahon, he said, Sean, I'm, I have no problem doing whatever to you, or with you. <laughs> and Sean said, oh, that's great, because I would not do that for you. That's the difference right there. Brett's willing to play and be professional, play ball and be professional. Sean was all about him, and, Vince was, and he knew Vince was going to let him get away with whatever he did. So it wasn't a two-way thing. It was a one-way thing. Well, that's true. Well, at, at some point, and then when, when Brett said, leading up to Hartford, that he had just decided that he was going to fucking go in there and tackle him when he saw him, 
Okay, I know it's been 25 years, but the way that I remember the recounting of the incident the night that it happened, is as everybody remembers, I was there. I was the first one to hear the unsafe work environment line come out of Shawn Michaels' mouth when he told Vince right before he walked out. That was his way of leaving without getting fired or suspended or his money held up or whatever because he was going to have a legal defense. He'd already thought... I- a guy like Shawn Michaels does not think of the phrase unsafe work environment uh, without having consulted somebody else to figure out how can I fucking get out of here and not get in trouble for it. It's somebody else's fault. Ah, oh, Brett just beat me up? Okay, unsafe work environment. But here's the thing. That night, what we had heard was that Brett was in the bathroom uh, fucking combing his hair in the mirror or whatever. And Sean walks behind him. And the way that I heard it told, Brett said something like, hi, Sean, or something like that. And Sean said something like, don't fucking talk to me. Oh, okay. Then I'll just, I'll just take you down on the fucking bathroom floor and start fucking punching you in the face and rip your hair out. And that's when the noise happened and Lawler was in one of the stalls and here came the Brooklyn brawler and they pulled him apart. But whichever, it, it's no, um, it, it ha- the incident happened. It's just what predicated it, what smart-ass remark was made. But then I guess, and by the way, it was a 30-second fight and it was over with. But I guess then that's where I think the whole thing just fell apart because now the the Survivor Series 97 There've been documentaries just about that match and incident. The book's written. It's been discussed ad nauseum. And they gloss over it in the most simple of terms. And this is where I knew your head was going to explode. Because basically, they they took Brett getting an offer from WCW in 96 and Vince saying, no, I'll give you this 20-year contract. And then Brett signing that. And then Vince coming back six months later and saying, I can't pay it, start negotiating again. I'll give you written permission to do so. Nobody will know about it. Get your deal. Uh, and then to the last 30 days of Brett's run in the WWF, they, they conf- conflated all that together into what you would. Th- oh, by the way, there's uh, Tom Drexler now is underneath the office. With a power saw. Can you hear that? Oh, I can hear that. That's Uncle Tom right now. But anyway, they put it all into like a, it sounded like a six-week period where all this shit just happened. And it was a fucking over a year. So that was a little kabuki-ish, as they say. And then they not only had Bruce, which I'll get to in a second, but they had Triple H saying, well, there was no way we could allow Bret Hart to leave with the WWF Championship. Well, he wasn't going to leave with the title belt. We've already established that. He was going to leave as champion. And that was the bone of contention. And I don't know why that they continue to try to frame this narrative as Brett was going to show up on Raw the following Monday live with the title belt and call himself the WWF champion or Nitro. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That was not only was that not going to happen, but Vince, I heard from Vince's mouth, I the words, I trust Brett not to do that. Here was the thing. 
I did too. If Bret Hart had told Vince McMahon that he was not taking the belt, and by the way, they would have taken the belt back after his last match anyway. He wouldn't have carried it down to Atlanta. But also he said, I'm not going on live Raw next Monday because he was still under contract uh, to the WWE for another few weeks. Vince didn't believe Brett was going to do it because he believed Brett's word that he wouldn't, but neither Vince nor Bruce nor Shitstain nor myself trusted Eric Bischoff. And I remember that the advice from most of us, but definitely from me to Vince was, we can trust Bret Hart to not do, and in hindsight, this whole thing fell apart, but we can trust Bret Hart not to do anything to make the wrestling business itself look bad. And we, you believe him, and I tend to believe him too, when he says he's not going to take the belt, he's not going to show up Monday live, but nobody believed that Eric Bischoff would not come out, whether he gave his word or not because his word means nothing. It was a wrestling war, and Bischoff is Bischoff. So the thought was that Eric Bischoff would be able, technically, if he wanted to, to come out on the live WCW broadcast the day after Survivor Series and say, I have just signed a contract with the WWF champion, and he starts here next month. And even though Bischoff had given Bret Hart his word that he wouldn't do that, and Bret had relayed that word, who gives a shit? It's fucking Bischoff. He's a fucking crook. And it's a wrestling war. So that was what the motivation was to see that Bret didn't leave as champion because back then, before the comedy writers and the fucking cosplay trampoline cowboys had got involved in wrestling, the main world championships meant something, a lot. And if you said, if Eric Bischoff, the president of WCW, had came out the following Monday after Survivor Series and said, I've just signed the WWE champion or WWF champion, Brett the Hitman Hardy starts next month, that would have looked like Vince McMahon couldn't even keep his world champion. But if Eric Bischoff came out on that Monday and said, I just signed Brett the Hitman Hart, and everybody knew it goes without saying he just lost the WWF championship the previous night on pay-per-view, then the perception would change to anybody whose perception could change, the people who weren't already in one camp or another, well, he lost the title and He's bailing out. He's going to take money somewhere else, but it's not the champion. His sour grapes maybe played a part in that. It's a, a, a different perception at that time because the general mainstream fan base was still not only not particularly smart, but they actually looked at the world titles like that they were big fucking deals. And now everybody goes, oh, what the fuck? Because nothing means anything. But that was the that was the point. That was why that Vince did not want Brett to leave Montreal as the WWF champion, not because he didn't trust Brett, at least that's what he was saying to us, but because he didn't trust Bischoff and we didn't either. But it's all bullshit. Because they knew Bischoff wasn't gonna do it because of the whole Medusa lawsuit. 
They showed Medusa no, throwing the belt. No, but no, no. They, I'm not saying that they would even have the belt. And, and of course, they showed that in this show again to prove that it had happened before and they didn't want, to have, want it to happen again. I'm just talking about Eric Bischoff running his fucking dick liquor on live television before we had another live show to do anything about it and saying we've signed the, the guy who's still the WWF champion. So, and that, again, wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been a legal offense. That again, would have been a true statement. This is all because of Vince's insistence on Brett dropping the belt to Sean yep. in this way. Vince could have, if Vince wanted to do things in a different way and not leave on bad terms with Bret Hart, like screwing him out of the company, after you tell him to go negotiate because you don't want to pay him, need some of that money for future women. <laughs> I mean, Bret Hart did nothing wrong. Vince had a month to say, okay, you'll drop it to The Undertaker. You'll drop it to Steve Austin. And not that that would have been the right thing, but there were so many guys. There were so many different things. Well, before way match and Sean will pin this person. There's a whole bunch I of hate, things that could I'm, have been done. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you because I've said many times, I thought that it was crazy that Vince fucking told Brett that he couldn't honor the contract and he could go ahead and negotiate elsewhere before he took the belt off of him. And again, it was less about getting the belt off Brett, more about getting it on Sean. Because that's what Vince had wanted to do originally. And that's and and he wanted to get the match in the ring and get what he wanted done, but he should have taken it. He should have got the belt off Be Brett before he told Brett he was going to renege on the deal. Once he told Brett that he was going to renege on the deal, he still should have made motion to get it off beforehand. And if he had to, just for the sake of it, he could have gone with Undertaker or someone else. I mentioned Shamrock. I said, boogie him with Shamrock, but he'd see that coming a mile away. Um, but none of these documentaries ever point out the other thing, which is a fact, and I understand why WWE doesn't point it out, but people see Shawn Michaels differently now because he had a second career. Shawn Michaels bombed as a champion. Yeah. The houses did not go up. They were down. The ratings were down. That's when WCW... It was better, it was better than Nash now. Bear in mind, it was better than Nash's run. But WCW kicked WWE's ass the most when Shawn was on top. And as soon as Shawn left, everything changed. And I think we all look at Shawn one way now. We could all certainly respect his talent in the ring. But as a personality, he had go-home heat then, I think, more than people realize. Even when he was a babyface, the way Vince was pushing him. So... It wasn't just Vince choosing Sean over Brett. It was Vince choosing someone who had already not done well in the role. Yeah. Over someone he knew he could trust. And well, as somebody who had already lost his smile at that point. So that was, yeah, again, I'm just saying. And that's the thing is anything else, a number of different things could have been done with Brett in that last period of time. But Vince was insistent on going to Sean and having Sean come out ahead of that thing because Sean was the one staying and Brett was the one going. And that's how we were all instructed. So, you know, I could have mentioned many more times, well, Vince, you know, he could have dropped it back in June or whatever, but that wasn't going to work then. So, okay, what do you got now? What do you want now? How the fuck are we going to get there? And I'm not going to relitigate the finish anymore except to say that this is where I knew your head was going to explode. When Bruce said, Brett didn't want to lose the title to Sean, and that's not Brett's choice. That wasn't Brett's choice. Yes, it was. In his contract, 
because the contract that Vince gave him, he had creative control for his last 30 days because he anticipated that there would be some kind of hoo-ha going on at what point he ever left the company. And that's why that was put in there, and Vince agreed to it. So they never said that. Again, they just have Bruce saying, well, it, it wasn't Brett's choice. It's our title. Well, no, it was Brett's choice because of the clause you wrote in the contract that wasn't in anybody else's contract and wouldn't have been in Brett's except Vince gave it to him. That made it his choice. So now you've painted yourself into a goddamn the middle of a silo. Not a corner, but the middle of a silo. you got no place to go that's legal, moral, or ethical, which is why the double cross came in. You know, Brett's such an amazing wrestler, you know, one of my favorites of all time, but what an amazing guy, because he should be so much madder than he really is, because they're still lying about this shit in their documentaries about him. They still and, can't and just tell the truth. And now he's on it, and they're still yeah. lying. Yeah, and, and, but that's where, I, where, where Bruce said that. I said, Brian, last head's going to explode because you're immediately going to say, no, it was his choice. And see, that's the thing. You know, I've never before, I've never before heard Bruce Pritchard's honesty questioned. As a matter of fact, I've never even heard it mentioned. But in this case, <laughs> it's so anyway, they had the match, they had the sharpshooter, they rang the bell, the reactions from talent, and then Freddie Prinze kind of closed it up saying, this is the moment that changed wrestling forevermore. And that's the moment that I said, I should have kept my fucking mouth shut and let them figure out their own finish. And there, but that was WWE rivals and uh, coming up. The biography is on Goldberg coming up. I can't remember what the next rivals is, but I know there's, unfortunately we're going to have to skip one WWE rivals episode. Brian, have you seen they've advertised four? have you seen the one that was the last one they advertised? No, actually, logically, at least I didn't see any of them. So no, I don't know. Okay. Well, they advertised four and the last one on the list was Stephanie McMahon versus Brie Bella. What? They're doing Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. I think they're doing Undertaker and Mankind. They're doing something else. And Stephanie McMahon and Brie Bella as a an hour-long documentary on a rivalry. That's smart. Actually, I'll give them a lot of credit. That's a good move. In, in what way? For the Not for the viewers. Certainly. Yes, it is. Well, think about what's in the news. You have the daughter of Vince McMahon versus the... What is she? The stepdaughter of John Laurinaitis. Oh, shit. Well, maybe now. But but they've been doing this show for a year. Do you think they knew about it that long ago? And a run-in from the fathers-in-law? Or maybe, what are the mothers-in-law going to say about this? Eve Arden and Kay Ballard, what do the mothers-in-law have to say about this? Anybody out there 70 years old, fans of situation comedies from the 60s? You're rolling in the aisles with laughter right now. I did see they announced a biography of the Bellas. Will John Laurinaitis be in the biography? I bet you he might have been in the original version, but maybe not the final cut. But can you imagine that? An hour of A&E network programming devoted to Stephanie McMahon versus Brie Bella. Like that's a, th I didn't even, does anybody remember that even happened? No, no one gives a shit about any of that. The Bellas have like a career that in their heads makes them legends, but to other fans, it's like they were the transition between the early divas and the women who knew how to wrestle. Yeah. When the girls were the shits and it, well, first the girls knew how to wrestle. Then Lauren Itis was in charge of talent relations and it became a fucking strip club. And then now the girls can wrestle again, but now Lauren Itis is back. Well, but he's gone. So, but yeah, there was that point in there. The lingerie catalog sniffer himself was 
signing up plenty of, uh, of all the women on the roster like forget about even like historically anything you could pull up which you know they really didn't push women <laughs> until vince decided he was going to be single one way or another <laughs> but like of all the women who have been there i guess trish and lita i'm sure charlotte i'm not even sure which one would be the charlotte feud but to go with stephanie versus brie bella's uh, a bit ridiculous nepotism nepotism is, Why it, do you it, say that in Dusty's voice, nepotism? Well, um, and here's something else people been saying. Since this has come out about Vince, well, why didn't Linda divorce him a long time ago? She could be filthy rich. She'd have half of every... Somebody out there thinks Linda McMahon is hurting for money. What do you think? They just didn't do the divorce. The settlement was already made. What'd she spend $80 million to run for Senate? Like she's going to be a fucking senator? She... And then... You know, all the other things that uh, that she has done and gone on to do, that was her settlement. She don't have to do shit. She's got all the money she needs, and she can go flit around and try to... She went from Vince to Trump, which is definitely a fucking trade down. When you think we've said Vince is a an articulate, eloquent, intelligent, good-looking president pig shit... But, you know, she doesn't need a divorce to get her settlement. She's living her own life, doing her own thing, associating with other rich billionaire assholes and running for offices she's not going to ever win. Remember when she lost, I forget if it was the first time or the second time, I think it was Vince's money too. But they had a shot of her, you know, giving the speech, saying that she's sorry they didn't win, conceding. And Vince was at the back of the stage crying. <laughs> I did. I've never seen. You that. never saw. Oh my god! I never. He, he's crying. He was crying over the forty million dollars that he just lost for nothing. <laughs> see, I can think. Even if they were on the outs, Vince and Linda, I can see him thinking, "Okay, if she becomes a senator, then I'm in. I've got the fucking, you know, not only the insider trading professionals on my side, but I've got the fucking government on my side, and I've got a mole in the White House and all this other stuff." But. You know, when she lost. What were they like together? I mean, because you were in their house and, you know, it wasn't just always Vince. I mean, you did see her around. Were they like a, I hate to put it this way, were they a normal couple? Were they lovey-dovey? Did they tease each other? What were they like as, a, as an actual couple? Well, it, it, they weren't, it, they just spoke to each other. Like, we would be there on Wednesdays, usually, sometimes they'd change the day, but on Wednesdays at Vince's house, but by the time we got there, at, you know, we're supposed to be there at nine o'clock in the morning, so me and Bruce and or Shitstain would have to leave our homes up where normal people lived about two hours early, so we'd leave at seven o'clock to fight that traffic 40 miles to Vince's. Linda was already at the office in Stamford. And then, a lot of times, when it got to be 6.30, quarter to seven, especially in a season where it's dark up there and we're looking out the windows, we're waiting for headlights to see Linda coming back from the office because when she would come in, she would say hello and mention something to Vince that they needed to do. And that would hopefully wrap up our confinement and we'd be able to get the fuck out of there. So you would see, we saw Linda more at the office then we actually saw her at the house, and at the office, she was never in the same place as Vince McMahon. Vince's office on the fourth floor, the big corner with all the nice windows overlooking Stamford, was on one side of the building, and her office, the corporate 
side was on the complete other side of the tower. And unless it was an, a big meeting where everybody was involved, not only creative, but department heads, et cetera, you never saw them in the same place, the office. So I spent more time with shit stain than I saw Vince McMahon spend with his wife in three years. Which maybe that's the way they were still married and living under the same roof. That's a secret to a good marriage, apparently. Send her to Florida. <laughs> you have a good time up in Connecticut. The, but but yeah, I mean, so it wasn't like they were walking hand in hand down the dew-kissed meadow in in Greenwich. Um, Vince was working with us, and she was working at the office. And then when they were under the same roof, Vince would leave us go so he could get on the phone and work with other people. <laughs> and whatever work Vince did in the or, or Linda did in the uh, tower was usually not anything that was under Vince's purview. He was wrestling and talent and big picture, and she was actual business and meetings with normal human beings. Well, perhaps with everything going on with Vince, despite her having a good time in Florida, it's in the news, so it's hard to just ignore everything. You may want someone to talk to. You know, and that's true. And also, I've heard now, Brian, some statistics. Are you ready for this? Let's Do not, you realize? No, no, no. What? You and statistics, you make up statistics and they get us in trouble every no, single time. I'm not making up any I'm telling you that I've just recently heard that 90% of the people in the world will have to keep the same brain for their entire life. Nine out of 10 people are going to have just the one brain for the rest of their life. No transplants, no trade-ins, no second chances. And how well, Brian, would you take care of your car? If you knew you had to keep the same car for your, the rest of your life, 60, 70, 80 years. Well, for people that are only going to have one brain, you got to take care of them too. And proper maintenance, just like your car. We care how we care for our minds, Brian, affects how we experience life, how we feel about things, how we process information. So you got to invest the time and the care into keeping your car healthy and in keeping your brain healthy. That's right, folks. This is not talking about rockauto.com. This is talking about keeping your brain healthy and supporting your brain with betterhelp.com, BetterHelp Online Therapy. You can do things to exercise your brain, like learning a new language, sprechen Sie Deutsch, or taking power naps, or talking on the phone to somebody about the things that are affecting you and keeping you from achieving your goals and happiness in life. BetterHelp is online therapy. They've got video and phone and even live chat sessions. You don't even have to see anybody on camera if you don't want to. So no shaving, no bathing. You don't have to dress up. You can just let it all hang out. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched up with a therapist in under 48 hours and start communicating. So take care of that brain. It might be the only one you get. Only 10% of the people are allowed to have a second chance at a brain, and you don't want to rely on those odds. So right now, go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com, slash J-C-E, and you'll get 10% off your first month. So if you join up in August, there's normally 31 days, 10% off. There'll be 28 days in August. You're going to be ahead of everybody. You will be finished with August three days before everybody else. 
10% off your first month's services at betterhelp.com slash JCE. Get ahead now. Finish August in only 28 days. That's not the way it works. Don't promise people that. You can't change the calendar. Well, I can if I say I can. You can't. You know. What do you mean you can if you say you can change the calendar? Well, sure. <laughs> they say right here, BetterHelp gets 10%. You know, if everybody listening now signed up for BetterHelp and got 10% off one month, well, all that together, we'd, we'd save years. All right. Well, let's save uh, years in our life and talk a little bit more. Here on the show, actually, I guess we're taking away years from our life talking about some of these <laughs> topics here. But Jim, before we get to whatever else we have, anything else you watched? Anything else? Now, we didn't do any reviews, and we're going to talk about Dynamite on the Experience, which will be out Sunday night. I'm going to tell everyone that right now. Yes, yes. But have and, you watched And next, w- next week at the castle, they actually start putting everything back together. So this should be a temporary situation with our schedule. I did... Obviously, I didn't watch all of Raw because I didn't have 16 days to devote to one television program with all this that's going on. But I did watch the first segment because that flew by with Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman. And uh, our boy Austin Theory is getting involved in this. And uh, I'm, I'm hesitating. I will hold my thoughts and see how it all turns out. But... Three hours of national television. I read the recap. I tried to zip through some of it. And the only thing that I could stomach watching was the only two real stars they had on the program is the first segment, Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman. And they're headed to SummerSlam. And it's going to be Lesnar and Reigns again because those are the only two money-drawn stars they've got now that Cody's hurt. And I got to be honest with you, Brock seems to be getting more comfortable doing promos. And part of it is because he knows he's over, and you can tell when he comes out, he doesn't give a shit. He's going to play around. He's going to do his thing. It's still going to be better than everybody else's, and he knows he's over. But he's not trying to memorize lines. He's not trying to be dramatic. He's just talking to Penn. He's talking like his smart-ass self. And you can tell the difference in... AEW on TBS and WWE on USA, a lot of initials there. On AEW, just everybody gets to say shit for no reason, right? Jane Cargill just says, tells Tony, cut the shit, no reason. All the heels just, they've all got Tourette's and potty mouth. Brock Lesnar, the biggest box office attraction in modern professional wrestling says he's going to give somebody a shit kicking and they bleep shit. The difference between the USA network and I get, did I ever tell you about the, the uh, uh, parameters we had on language from Sinclair broadcasting's corporate uh, aficionados? Did I ever tell you that Brian? I'm not sure. Because when we first got started with having, Ring of Honor Television on Sinclair and their local stations. Okay, this is not cable. These are broadcast television stations. So they are fully under the rules and regulations of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, that governs broadcast free over-the-air television. And so we know that these guys, they're used to working indie shows and cussing on the mic and 
They used to ring of honor. You could cuss at live events. They were putting it on VHS, whatever, but we need to keep an eye on this because the last thing that we need to do as the, the new kid in the Sinclair family is to get heat with the TV stations. So obviously we knew we couldn't say shit. You can't say shit on broadcast TV. You can say it on cable now, depending on the cable network, but we knew shit was no good. Can't say goddamn. that ain't going to happen. You can get by every once in a while under the Sinclair auspices with an outraged son of a bitch as long as it was in a a kind of a great a, a good context instead of just being flippantly thrown out as part of fucky fucky fuckity McFuck fuck. Fuck was never a goddamn option. But ass. They had several different kinds of rules related to ass and ass related comments brian did you know that you can say on at least in 2011 on the sinclair broadcasting uh, television group you could say i'm gonna kick your ass and you could call somebody an ass but you could not shove anything into anybody's ass See the, the, I the did not distinction know that. I'm making? <laughs> I did not know that. That And actually, I went over this in minute detail with Mark Davis, who was the head of production. I said, now, wait a minute. He's No, that's the thing. Nothing can go in the ass. You can kick somebody's ass, and you can call somebody an ass, but you can't stick anything in anybody's ass. And that was the, the context in which we could use ass. So it was, it was a whole thing. Nevertheless, um, Brock does his promo. They bleep shit and shit kicking, but he's out. To, he looks like Klondike Brock, the cowboy hat and whole nine yards. And then here comes Paul Heyman. He interrupts and Brock started prodding Paul because Paul came out kind of slow, was going to get the people into his thing. And Brock started prodding him <laughs> I think, because Brock had said something about Oh God, he learned, he learned in, uh, I think they were in Texas. He learned in Texas, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And Roman Reigns is a hog. When Paul comes out, Brock says, speaking of hogs, I mean, now it's like Brock Lesnar now is the guy who knows all about wrestling psychology and is the fucking, the witty promo master. Who would have ever thunk this? So Paul, as he does, backhandedly puts Brock over as having the advantage in the last man standing match over Roman Reigns, because Roman is the, 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 the tack he's taken is that Roman is a great athlete and a great competitor, but Brock is an animal. And this is last man standing, hurting someone till they can't get up anymore. And Brock may have an advantage in that respect, but Paul's going to have Roman Reigns ready at SummerSlam to put Brock Lesnar down. And that's where I thought about this because they just bleeped shit, and I went through the Sinclair rules on ass. Paul's finishing line was, he's going to have Roman Reigns stick his hand up your ass and pull your heart out through that hole. But they bleeped shit. So I don't know what the fuck to think anymore. But in, if you're in the Sinclair family, nothing in the ass. Have you noticed, Brian, they cannot what Paul Heyman 
if he doesn't want to be whatted because he is so good, he doesn't have to pause. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't use a period. He keeps going with no natural break for them to jump in and do that until finally they've decided to just take the ride with him and listen to what he says. Yeah. So he's, he's impervious there. He's as skilled a talker as we've ever seen. He has the most talented mouth that has ever been in wrestling. But anyway, so then, as Paul says that, here comes Theory, our boy formerly known as Austin, with his Money in the Bank briefcase, and he says he's good. Now they're putting the thought in people's minds, okay, this little prick, one way or another, is going to come out. We don't know who's going to win because whether it's Roman Reigns or whether it's Brock Lesnar, is this little prick going to cash in and steal the title from somebody? So there's a little intrigue there, but. He's going to win the U.S. title back, according to him, at SummerSlam, and then put his foot on one chest or another and win the title. And then they showed the clip of Brock giving Theory the F5 off the top of the Elimination Chamber cage. And they went black on the bump. Do you remember that? It's where he was 25 feet in the air, but he gives him the spin for the F5, and then he just drops straight down to his feet on the ground. And, you, and they shot it, you could tell. So they had to black out the landing like he he landed and splattered into so many grease spots that, you know, you can't show it on television. But that is is the way they've set, set this up where it's Reigns and Lesnar again. Yes, we've seen it. They're still the only money drawers, but this time Theory is going to be involved in some fashion. But then, okay, I'm buying this. You got Paul Heyman. He's the best fucking promo in wrestling. You got Brock Lesnar. He's the biggest box office traction in wrestling. You got Theory. He's the future of the WWE. And then what happens? All of a sudden, Otis and little Gable, old Shorty, are at ringside, dressed to wrestle. They just appear. They walk up. And as Brock turns around to look at them, you never see Paul again. You never see Theory again. They just disappear. And they're feeding these two schlubs to Brock Lesnar because they don't want Brock to beat up Theory. They, Brock can't beat up Paul. That's against his fucking religion. They, the, Roman Reigns is not there to be beat up. So they want the people to see Brock beat somebody up. So they just wander Otis and Gable out there so Brock can beat them up. And... <laughs> At least Brock did it right. Gable tries to chop block him, and Otis tackles him, and Brock doesn't go down. He doesn't sell it. He laughs at him, beats up both of them, hits them both several times with the steel stairs, wears them out with a chair, belly to bellies Gable into the floor camera, and F5s Otis through a table. And as we mentioned, Paul and Theory are long gone, and now you've forgotten they were there. It made no sense, except it was so people could see Brock Lesnar engage in physicality with somebody that's what they came for but when you do that just for the sake of doing it besides the fact that it's obvious and no surprise and doesn't make a lot of sense you run the risk of people not leaving the segment with the thought subliminally that you wanted them to have which is okay even if roman or brock settle this theory's going to screw something up some kind of way what's going to happen that was it would have been the thought if they'd left it on the promo, and that 
directly ties into selling tickets and or pay-per-views for SummerSlam. But now you spent the last three minutes making them happy as clams, and they've they've glossed over the, oh, shit, we were ready to buy them. Oh, but look at Brock. He just beat those guys up. What's next? Take your mind off of it. I, that's why I don't like those type of things. But that was basically of three hours of Raw. If you wanted to see anything, that was what you ought to see. And the rest of it was all the people with names they picked out of fucking phone books somewhere. Well, another thing I know that you did see because you brought it up to me was there was some controversy on social media because the clip was going around. Something happened at a house show between Natalia, Natalie <laughs> Neidhart, and Liv Morgan, who I think is she the Raw Women's Champion? She's one of the women's champions. She, well, yeah, she just, that's the one I trended because I said she's too girly. I'm not a fan of Liv Morgan. She doesn't look like she could whip anybody. She weighs 100 pounds. Every time she takes a bump, it sounds like poof. Apparently, they were having a match, Natty Neidhart and, uh, and Liv Morgan, at a house show. And this was fan cam footage from their, their phone. Is that the phone? I have a massage for you. Uh, so they had fan cameras, uh, footage of the phone, and it was just a 15-second clip, but it was Liv Morgan hitting her little spinny DDT finish thing where she kicks off the ropes and boom, and Natty takes the bump, and Liv covers one, two, three, and as soon as Liv rolls off of the cover after the three count, Natalia rolls right up on her knees, looking at Liv Morgan, reaches her index finger out, pointing like... You could almost say, and that's what I think about you. And then she rolls out of the ring and stalks off, not selling the finish whatsoever. And this attracted some people's attention and they put the clip on Twitter. And then apparently, and I've known Natalia. I haven't seen her in years and years. Obviously I knew her dad. I've never met Liv Morgan. So I don't know anything about their personal interactions or even their current personalities or who's most likely to go off and, you know, cut a promo on somebody because something they did. But Natalia apparently tweeted back. She was just saying, thank you to live for the match. And, and then she apparently deleted that tweet. I've seen a lot of thank yous in, and I've heard, I've given a few and I've heard a few in the middle of a match or the end of a match or wrestling whatever situation, and that didn't look like any kind of a thank you. You saw this clip, right? I saw it after I heard about the thank you thing, and that's what I told you. Oh, I heard it was just a thank you, and you laughed yeah. at me. You told me to watch it. It was more than a thank you. It certainly looked a little bit angry. Well, I'll tell you what it looked like to me, because I hadn't seen anything like that in almost 40 years. But I've mentioned, and I thought I'd told you this story before, but maybe I hadn't. But now, anybody out there, if you want to watch the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel, watch every clip that we have put up at least once, maybe twice to make sure, and then find the one where I've told Brian last this story, and I'll send you a, a hearty handshake in the mail. But in 1984 in Louisiana, Sonny King was one of the baby faces on the cards, and Buddy Landell for whatever reason, Dundee had decided we're going to work a program with Sonny King and Buddy Landell. And part of it, I think, was Buddy was hooked up with with Butch Reed, and Butch had had an issue with Sonny. They were still trying to p replace JYD. 
And that's why we ended up, we were supposed to work in the Superdome with Dusty Rhodes and Junkyard Dog, and it ended up being Dusty Rhodes and Sonny King. And boy, that that changed the the whole uh, importance of that match. But anyway, I don't know how to describe Sonny King's work in the ring to anybody that never saw it, because I have never seen anybody else, for better, for worse, good, bad, or indifferent, Nobody else ever worked the style or had the movements of or worked in any way like Sonny King. Would you say that's a fair statement, Brian, on the surface of it? I'll say that I never saw any early Sonny King and any of the Sonny King I saw, whether it was Memphis or Mid-South in 84, which was the tail end of his career, yeah, was not very good. And I didn't understand how he could get over in places. Then you start thinking, oh, must be the promo. And then you'd hear the promos, and you'd know. I was going to say, I've heard a couple. Uh, the one in Memphis when he returned after almost getting killed, I remember. Yeah. Maybe a couple of really good promos, but other than that, his promos weren't good, I didn't think. Well, and you and you said, and this is the key, I never did either. You never saw any early Sonny King. Sonny King and Strongbow were the WWF Tag Team Champions in 1971. And, I, of course, the in-ring bar at that time was not great up there, but still, he was used. He was on top. Um. In uh, Detroit, I believe, for the Sheik for a while, he had a run in the Carolinas where he was one of the, in the, what, 73, 74 time period, he was one of the top baby faces. But Sonny, his work was not good. It was not good, and we never saw him before. I never saw him before 1978. But it just, he had been a boxer in his youth, in his younger days, and he tried to do a little boxing footwork and throwing jabs, but that didn't, he didn't do that like Rocky Johnson. And he had two left feet, and and it got worse as time went on. And because he could talk a little bit, and he had, he was six foot four or five and 250 pounds, and he was a badass guy. So they tried to make him a manager because he could be, you know, dark and evil type and, you know, but... It, the point is, Jerry Jarrett liked him. He really liked him as a person and as a human being. And that's why he got booked in Tennessee a lot. And as a manager with Joe LaDuke, Jean-Louis, a few other people, okay, that, that was all right. But the matches were horrible. And then, and then in 1980, late 81, early 82, Sonny was, he was from Louisiana originally, but he was visiting friends in Charlotte while he was, I believe he either had been wrestling in Tennessee or had just finished up here. And he was at the Charlotte Coliseum and visiting some of the boys that he knew. And these three or four guys were trying to, fans were trying to get in the back door without paying. And they were giving the old security guard a hard time. And Sonny King didn't back up from anybody. And he went over to say, hey, leave the old man alone. What the fuck? And one of the guys had a knife and stabbed him. And what didn't stab, didn't just stab him, stabbed him numerous times and cut him to the point where I believe one of the knife, one of the stabs nicked his heart. And I think there was a punctured lung involved. And so the point is he was rushed to the hospital, emergency surgery, and the doctor actually had to take his heart out of his chest and massage it in the process of doing whatever they did to patch him back up. 
So at that point, there was a long recuperation, and then he wanted to wrestle again. And he called Jerry Jarrett, and Jerry Jarrett booked him back in Memphis. And he came out, and he that's the interview that you're talking about, and that is the memorable one. I mean, he did some heel interviews with Joe LaDuke or whatever, but he came out and did the interview with Lance and told the story that the surgeon actually had his heart in his hand outside his body, and he was that close to death. And Sonny had this, this cute little son, a kid named Larry. And I think even at one time had a personalized license plate with his son's name on it. And the crux of the promo and the way that they brought Sonny back as a baby face was he wanted his son, Larry, to be able to see him wrestle again. And it was great. I mean, what a, you know, what a thing. But the problem was then he still couldn't wrestle. It couldn't work. It was just, it was not good. And, you know, like I said, Jerry even gave Sonny a chance to promote some spot shows. And at that point, I think this was 1981, 82, 83. That was, he was probably the first black wrestling promoter that I can think of anywhere of any level of show in Kentucky, Tennessee, maybe Georgia, you know, the, the, the southern area. Um, but then finally, at that point, by 1984, Sonny was, what, 40-something, and he'd had that issue. And so Bill Dundee, knew him from Memphis, booked him as one of the attempts to replace JYD. Every black guy in the business pretty much got a chance, and they just couldn't do it. But Sonny came in as a babyface, and this was now he's in his early 40s, and he's had that near-fatal incident and he, his work was not great to begin with this is where the story takes a more humorous turn buddy landell was going out of his fucking mind every night in the car if he'd ride with the midnight express god damn it god damn it he's trying to get over he's trying to be one of the top heels and in, in one of the biggest territories in the country and he's having these shitty matches that the people don't care about every night with sonny king and at the time, Sonny was using a spear for a finish, but it wasn't a spear like Goldberg or Roman Reigns. It was more like that Mill Mascaris flying chop where Mascaris would shoot you off into the ropes, and when you're coming back, he'd just take two steps and kind of lean in with a, a chop, and it, maybe his feet would leave the ground until he got older. <laughs> well, Sonny was doing the same thing with his hard head because he was bald-headed in his head, but that was the idea, so he would just... He would lean to the end of the guy coming off and kind of headbutt the guy's shoulder, and maybe Sonny's feet would come six inches off the ground, and that was his finish. And because Buddy's still underneath at that time, you know, on the card but not being featured, and they're trying to push Sonny, Sonny's got to go over, and he's beating him with that spear. And besides that, anything Buddy would call it was, again, two left feet or clumsy or Sonny didn't have the balance. And finally, goddamn, where was it? It was someplace that we could go out in the arena and watch the matches. It wasn't Baton Rouge. We were closer than that. It was someplace like, a you know, Monroe, Louisiana or whatever. 
But I swear to God, we're watching that match, and you can tell Buddy's getting more and more frustrated, and Sonny's just off. And I mean, this was the kind of thing, because Sonny would call shit that didn't even make sense. One day, Sonny, same territory, same time period, was working against Hercules Hernandez. And you remember what Hercules looked like in 1984. My got 2% body fat, jacked to the gills on every steroid known to man. This, one of the strongest human beings I've ever seen. Built like a Greek god, good-looking guy with hair and beard, could take bumps, backdrops. Yeah, he was and good in, in the there. ring, too, in 84. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was amazing. And he just he got injured, got old, and went to the WWF and got heavier instead of better. So at one time, this was in Biloxi, Mississippi. The referee buzzes by and said, when Sonny hits your rope, pull his foot. That would be to start the heat, right? But I'm looking in the ring, and Hercules is beating Sonny King up. Boom, boom, boom. And he packs Sonny up, and he goes to shoot him off. And I'm thinking, what? And he shoots Sonny off into the ropes to clothesline him. And when Sonny hits my ropes right in front of me, he just collapsed, even though I never touched him. He thought I had pulled his leg. <laughs> and he just collapses and trips and then looks back at me like, what the fuck? And I'm like, the referee, the only spot the referee called was when Sonny hits your ropes, pull his leg. But that would indicate that Sonny was going to hit the ropes, to try to tackle my guy or whatever. If I tripped my man's opponent when my man was in control and threw him into the ropes to clothesline him, then it looked like I'm helping Sonny. So I didn't do anything, right? Because it didn't make any sense. And he's like, oh, fuck. You know, so anyway, Buddy's in this thing. And everything's going sideways. And finally, you see Sonny make his comeback and he punches Buddy a few times with the boxer punches. He backs him up into the ropes. He fucking shoots him off. <laughs> and as Buddy comes back off, he leans in with that little spear headbutt where his feet don't even leave the ground. And I swear to God, Buddy didn't take a bump. He just stiffened up. And then he started sitting back down. He put his hands behind him and he sat down on his ass on the mat and then leaned back with his knees still bent up <laughs> and Sonny covered him. And as soon as Sonny started getting up, Buddy stood right straight back up and stuck that finger out just like Natty did to fucking Liv Morgan and mouthed some words that we later asked him what he said. <laughs> and he said, I said, that's the last fucking job I'm going to do for you, motherfucker, as he was waving his finger. And he rolled out of the ring and came back to the locker room. And from that point, Dundee just changed like the two or three matches they had left. He just changed them. And they never had to work with each other again. But that's what that thank you finger pointing reminded me of was Buddy Landell taking that spear, sitting down on his ass, leaning back, staying there for three seconds, and then standing straight up and saying, that's the last fucking job I'll do for you, motherfucker. Hey, so, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is what it was, and I'm not saying that at all. I just want to stress that. But it did make me think about it. Is it difficult, night after night, if you are a trained professional wrestler, someone who came up in the wrestling business around a family of wrestlers... Around the wrestling business. Yes. Is it difficult to work with someone who may have memorized a series of sequences versus someone who truly knows how to work? Yes. Especially when you're someone who knows how to work. Yes. Because it's not just about doing all the moves right. And as you said, memorizing a sequence of events, it's about if 
if you're somebody that's green or even has been in the business a few years, but it's just the modern, I'm going to memorize this routine we're going to go through and we'll base it on cool moves instead of logic. And it's it, the actual act of working. You, even if you're doing all the moves, the moves can be comfortable or the moves can be a fight or a struggle to get, or the moves can be painful. It depends on who you're working with. And sometimes they look the same to the outside eye. But remember, I've talked about people that they'll jerk you. Instead of just laying their hands on you and letting you flow with them, they'll jerk you around. And then you don't know which way to go. Are we going backwards? Are we going forward? Which way are we going? Because he's jerking me whichever way and I can't get a flow. Or when you're working with somebody and something just comes out of nowhere that's apropos of nothing. And, you know, while you're... You're putting a step over toehold on somebody and they just reach up and punch you in the fucking face. Boom. Okay. I didn't expect that coming at this particular point in time. It's just hard. Even if they're doing all the right things that they're supposed to do or following the prearranged sequence of events, the way that they flip you can determine how you land. The way that they grab you can determine whether you go smoothly somewhere, whether you have to figure it out in midair and it looks like shit or or just whether there's a cooperation and a, a chemistry in what you're doing or whether they don't, it's not comfortable sometimes to work with people, even if they're not trying to be stiff because it's just not, not easy. And so that, yeah, that it can be frustrating. And especially if somebody gets in a bad mood or has had a travel issue or is, got other things going on and then goddamn they just can't get this fucking opponent of theirs male female animal vegetable or mineral whatever to settle down listen to them slow down calm down stop the happy feet don't get so herky jerky hey what the fuck i need all my hair give me back what you just pulled out whatever then it then you get grumpy and, and then you got to put them over so sometimes you get grumpy. Do sometimes you think about suing? Well, you know, often you might do that, but only, only if they have in some way harmed you, if only in some way through negligence or lack of care and attention to what they are doing, if they have harmed you or offended you or cost you money or the same thing goes for your social circle or people in your family or whatever. That's when you might have to sue. And you know what? As a matter of fact, we have a special bonus on the program because we're going to talk about some of the legal issues facing pro wrestling today, as well as some of the legal issues that could face some of the wrestlers if they don't smarten up, as well as a variety of things with, of course, the consigliere of the cult of Cornette, the man, the myth, the legend himself. Call Stephen P. Show or two. Still the rest. 
And yes, ladies and gentlemen, before we go to this exclusive interview, one moment of explanation, we had to record with Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. We had to record with Stephen to accommodate his busy schedule with all of these class action suits and trials and various things, filings that he's involved in. And we recorded this literally hours before the news came out that Vince McMahon had signed multiple more DNAs. (laughs) He spread DNA and he signed NDAs um, (laughs) on multiple more women for multiple (laughs) more millions of dollars. So we apologize for that, but Stephen asked if he if he should come back on and redo the interview. We said, no, we've established what Vince does. We now just know he does it more often. But we will go to that now, pre-recorded because of his busy schedule, with the legal side of wrestling with our fine friend and consigliere, Stephen P. New of newlawoffice.com. Brian, can we go to that interview at this time? Well, Jim, before you say anything else outrageous and scare anyone else off this week, I'm very happy to say we have a very big guest, and to introduce him, let me introduce the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. Oh, for God's sake, we've already told the people this is pre-recorded because we've all got noise going on at our various residences, as well as Stephen P. New being a very busy man around the country these days, but to talk about the legal side of wrestling and some of the implications of some of the things that the other shows just don't cover. We'd like to welcome the sponsor of the drive-thru and also a longtime friend and consigliere of the Cult of Cornette, Stephen P. New. Stephen, thank you for being here. Hi, it's my oh. pleasure to always- <laughs> I get excited. Sorry. Brian, Sorry. <laughs> Brian, it's not the commercial. You don't have to play the music this time. We got the real motherfucker here. <laughs> but, but, or Stephen, is that in your rider? Is that in your contract rider? You had to get your music to, to come out? I, uh, look, if I didn't think it would get me disbarred, I'd go to the courtroom with that music playing in the background, Jim, all right? I just picture him running through courtrooms like with that music playing, just with a briefcase in his hand, from one room to the next, winning cases. You know, that could be the next television commercial. Remember, uh, old O.J. Simpson did the Hertz commercial where he's running through the airport. Stephen could be running from courtroom to courtroom with and every time you burst through the door, a, a big basket of money falls from the sky into the plaintiff's hands. Yeah, because that's just the way it happens, Jim. That's, <laughs> that's, that's just, just the way it happens. I think it's a great idea. Just make sure when they ask you where you came up with the concept, you don't mention it was from the O.J. Simpson commercial. Yeah, right. right. Well, see, if, if you'd have been admitted to the bar in California 28 years ago, these things may have turned out differently. Speaking of things that are turning out differently, there's a lot of things going on in wrestling these days that that have legal implications or, or the legal process is involved in some kind of way, whether it be civil or criminal or whatever. And obviously the two major examples of that are Tammy Sitch and Jeff Hardy, but those topics have also been done as the children say ad nauseum and the document, if you go to pwinsider.com, you can read every detail on the uh, Sonny case and you know jeff apparently is 
is currently in treatment and his arraignments have been postponed down the road. But there's other things going on that the regular shows just don't quite cover. They, they go for the sensationalism. But there's bigger implications to the professional wrestling industry than anything in the Hardy or Sitch cases involving, obviously, Vince and the WWE and the not only the investigation into him and Laurinaitis's behavior, but also the stockholders have started retaining firms to investigate if there's impropriety. And you kind of know about this from two different directions, Stephen, because you are an attorney and you're also a stockholder in the WWE. So what in the French fried titty fucks going on up there? Well, uh, there's uh, quite a bit, actually, Jim, and I I don't want to bore everybody. Uh, There was a mandatory course in law school and on the bar exam about corporations, SEC filings, and a course that I had my third year of law school called Business Organizations, where you learn about the rights of minority shareholders in a corporation versus those of a majority shareholders. And as we know, uh, I believe that I've I've read that uh, Vince and family own the controlling shares of stock. But, uh, and I see a lot of uh, uh, people saying uh, in error, uh, oh, well, you know, those majority stockholders can just run over the minority shareholders. That's not exactly uh, correct. When, When you've got a conflict of interest situation like this, where those shareholders' interests uh, conflict with the minority shareholders, and and it involves the chairman of the board and his possible misconduct uh, and things like that. It, it's almost like those shares get nullified, at least as it has to do with this. Minority shareholders always have rights. They just can't be run over uh, by everybody else. So there's a, a lot of different layers to this, having to do with the rights of minority shareholders, and uh, uh, by that meaning groups of people who don't quite own as much as the McMahons uh, and others if they voted in a block, for instance. Uh, Lots and lots of different legal angles to this story, Jim. Uh, One being, uh, what were the SEC filings? What was being made known among shareholders about WWE's uh, investigation into McMahon and Laurinaitis and possibly others concerning uh, this paralegal uh, who was reported uh, had this sexual relationship with McMahon and Laurinaitis, possibly others? And so there's that aspect of it. There's the, the corporate aspect of it. And uh, whether or not all of that was being disclosed. And so that's kind of part one. Uh, what I think would make it a tough case for someone like myself, if I wanted to bring a shareholder derivative suit uh, or you know hire some of these lawyers like the, the ones who are already advertising for uh, and, and say that they're going to bring a shareholder derivative suit for uh, shareholders of WWE stock. The tough part of that is, uh, and you guys have touched on this on the show the last couple of weeks, what damages have you suffered? You know, what what damage can you prove 
to WWE stock or the value of the company. And that's where I think that a, a legal case would get really tough because, uh, and Jim, I think you said, Al McMahon's going to not only come out of this unscathed, uh, the, the crowd's going to cheer him. Uh, you know, reports of Vince McMahon's demise uh, have been, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, premature. And, and so from a legal standpoint, there, there's two parts of every case. I don't care whether it's medical malpractice, a car wreck, or a dog bite. You've got to prove that one party's at fault. The second part you have to prove is that there were damages as a result of that. And so I can see whoever's going to defend the WWE or whoever would be defending McMahon or Laurinaitis or, you know, board members who supposedly didn't disclose this to other board members or, you know, shareholders who didn't get the disclosure of this activity. Uh, I, you know, I see the argument being made. Look, okay. Assume that everything that, this law firm alleges in this lawsuit is true. The damages, the, and there just aren't any damages here. So uh, it's well, and, really and that's and actually, let me, let me interject. The only perceptible financial damage to the WWE came not because of this incident or incidents or the whole saga with the paralegal, but because it was actually publicly disclosed. That's when the stock price went down a little bit. Uh, it didn't right. catastrophically drop. But the thing with, since the, the, they went public, since the WWE went public and started selling stock, you know, I, I always looked at it sideways because it's a wrestling company and you're selling stock and, you know, just those things didn't seem to mix to me. But also Vince and or his family, as you said, we don't know Stephanie has sold some things and we don't know what Linda's position is these days. But the point is Vince McMahon and or family members not only still controlled 80 something percent, I believe was the last estimate I saw of the stock, but they have more of the... Mm -hmm. And this is over my head also. Brian's a financial wizard. He probably knows. You probably do. But the Class A versus the Class B shares of stock, if Vince gets at a disproportionate voting rights in whatever because of the kind of stock he has. So you're right. There has to be some kind of guardrails or rules of the road or protection for the minority stockholders just through any type of SEC regulations or whatever, but how strong is that going up against a guy who owns 80% or thereabouts and most of the voting rights of a publicly traded company to begin with that's worth $5 billion? Well, I mean, even if you nullified those and, and you put everybody on equal ground, right, uh, you still have to answer the question of, okay, uh, prove what their self-dealing or whatever else you want to allege, you know, failure to disclose certain activities by certain people, prove how that's harmed, you know, your, your stock uh, split or it went up in value or, you know, they're, they're otherwise managing to make these big multi-billion dollar deals with Saudi Arabia and Fox and USA Network, uh, NBC Universal. Uh, it, it, I think it would be some uh, some tough sledding 
One thing you mentioned there, Jim, is about the non-disclosure aspect of this. I think you'll know whether WWE is serious about defending McMahon or how serious McMahon is about this. If there's a lawsuit filed attempting to try to get how this became public information, that's the aspect of this case that intrigues me the most. Because in a lot of my cases, uh, when we've got an agreement in principle to settle a case, and let's say we're settling a case for a million dollars, and then the defense lawyers will come to me and say, oh, well, well, listen, you know, Corporation X really don't want this to get out and where it's available to the, the rest of the members of the public or anybody to go down to the courthouse and read about this. So we would like confidentiality. Well, that's going to cost you a 10 or 15% premium. So if you want to throw an extra 100 grand on there, uh, I'll talk to my client about confidentiality in this settlement. So non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements are standard in uh, legal affairs. And uh, it's going to be real interesting to see how this affair with this paralegal or whatever you want to call it, this relationship with this paralegal, came to be known by the public. Did she violate the NDA by telling a roommate or, or you know, was there someone associated with her or was there someone in the, the front office who knew about it, who had access to it, uh, who leaked it? Uh, OK, in, here, in here's a question. Way. Here's a question. You and I are best friends and we just gab all the time. We spill the tea as they say, right? So mm -hmm. you know that my I'm having an affair with John Laryngitis because I'm telling you as it's happening. I'm giving you the details because we're friends and it's something going on in my life. But then a, a year from now, me and Johnny, we just don't see eye to eye anymore. And we break up and I sign a non-disclosure agreement that I'm not going to talk to anybody about our time together, me and Johnny, but I've already told you. So where, who, who has the legal exposure for disseminating that information then? Is it, is, am I absolved because I signed an NDA, but I told somebody before I signed it and now it's their fucking fault, but they didn't sign anything. So how does that work? The fact that the person, you know, a friend, a roommate, or whomever, may have known about that uh, a year ago, let's say, and the person comes forth and says, I don't know anything about a lawsuit or a settlement or anything like that, but a year ago, my friend, who was a paralegal in the WWE offices, uh, was having an affair being passed back and forth uh you know, between these upper executives of WWE Inc. Well, I, I, there's no legal exposure by anybody. And let me tell you the reason why. Number one, the person who signed the NDA didn't make the disclosure after signing the NDA. And number two, the person who said it, the roommate or whatever, uh, truth is an absolute defense to defamation. So it's not like uh, Laurinaitis or McMahon can come along and say, hey, Hey, she defamed me, pal. Well, no, she didn't. What she said was absolutely 100% gospel truth. So uh, there's really nothing that could be actionable about that. And I think that's a big part of the reason why WWE hasn't you know, tried to delve into. You haven't heard about any lawsuits uh, you know, suing for uh, breaches of the NDA or you know, suing the, the roommate or the whomever for 
uh, you know, defamation or tortious interference with business relations or anything like that, because I believe those are are all defensible. But it, it's really interesting to see how the rest of this uh, is going to play out. But that that's kind of my uh, that's kind of my hot take on on that topic, Jim. Well, what one one more thing with with this topic, and we'll move on because we had a couple of other things, but with. There's no, there's no been no accusation of a legal offense or issue in what Vince and or Laurinaitis did in the paralegal. It's this is all civil and or because of the publicly traded company aspect and stock, et cetera. And they want to know what the guy running the company is is doing. So I've heard and he that he paid her a hundred thousand dollars a year, well, two hundred thousand dollars a year. You're jumping ahead of me. We heard that Vince gave the $3 million, whatever, out of his own personal money, so that shouldn't, you know, affect the company and it's his own private business. But if he hired someone and then gave them a massive raise of of that nature and with all the other things that were going on, the point is that's company money. Does he have exposure there to something in terms of a civil problem with the shareholders, stockholders, SEC, whatever the case, and how many more of these, because they said they're investigating more NDAs. That meant a flat fact. There's more NDAs, more agreements with women. We're investigating those. We just don't know how many. So the same thing applies there. Was he, is he exposed in that respect? Well, anything that involves the company till is bad news. If you're paying a $45,000 a year, $50,000 a year paralegal, 100 or 200 or whatever, because you're having relations with her, and, and that involves the company money, regardless of what the money was used for, the, the, the civil suit settlement, you know, sexual harassment or whatever that was, um, then, uh, yeah, that, that's where the problem is. And then the minority shareholders are going to ask, well, how many times has this happened where someone in a position of power for whatever reason or having a relationship with him gets more money than, you know, the, the standard what this corporation was paying uh, that person? Right. Well, One last thing that I want to comment on, Jim, along those same lines, may or may not know it. And I don't know where the act was alleged to have occurred, uh, but. Sent Brian an article the other day. Uh, New York has recently enacted a law uh, called the Adult Survivors Act, which is going to extend the statute of limitations out to, I believe, November of 2023 for anyone who has ever been a victim of a sexual assault or a sexual offense in the state of New York at any given time. Basically, they're saying, hey, we don't care how old you are. If you were uh, sodomized, well, that's a bad example because it's an underage child, and they have a different it, statute of limitations. It's even longer. But basically, impropriety. Impropriety in 1982 to a 19-year-old who was born in 1963. She's now going to have until November of 2023. If she got sexually assaulted at the garden. In 1982, at the age of 19 years, she's now going to have until November of 2023 under the Adult Sexual Survivors uh, Act 
that act in New York was extended to age 57 for juvenile victims of sexual abuse for like the Catholic priests, Boy Scouts, things like that. And uh, it's unbelievable how much steam in, in the wake of the Me Too movement, things like that are picking up. Even here in, you know, in a state that's gotten a little more conservative like West Virginia, juvenile victims of sexual abuse and sexual assault now have until their 36th birthday if they were abused under the age of 18 years. So uh, that's going to be real interesting for WWE, professional sports organizations, uh, celebrities, things like that. Um, you know, well, and, and maybe the reason... The, the reason that uh, several people have noted that change recently in that extension on the statute of limitations is because of the new publicity that Rita Chatterton's story got. I mean, everybody had heard that story in 1986. And then it was, it, well, I won't say everybody heard Everybody heard it in on 19- Donahue in 92, right? right. In 86, people right. in, inside the wrestling business heard you know, scuttlebutt. Then in 92, she told a story on Donahue. Then she's been out of the public eye and it surfaced again with all these other allegations. But at the same time, she has never, to this point, sought to press anything. So she would have to be the person to make an issue out of this with this renewed statute of limitations for anything to be done in that respect, right? If the act occurred in New York, the answer is yes. Well, it I don't know where was uh, where was Brian? Do they did they have a tracking device on Vince's limo? I think it, they said it was in Poughkeepsie. I forget exactly where. Nothing it was, good she, happens in Poughkeepsie, ladies and gentlemen. I guess not. Well, what other topics do we have? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but hey, Stephen, here's one that's near and dear to my heart, because as you well know, and so do the people who have gone to law school in West Virginia over the last 30 years, I'm in the law books, the textbooks over there, because of fan lawsuits. And a lot of the guys, and I'm sure even the promoters or the so-called promoters, as Dennis Condry phrases some of them, um, <laughs> they think I'm just just quaint. Back in the day when the Fans were mad at the heels, and there was a fight, and a fan got the shit kicked out of them. They were going to sue one way, even if they started it, which most of the time they did. But that's all gone now that everybody knows that it's all entertainment, and nobody's going to sue anybody because all the fans and all the wrestlers are just good, close, personal friends, and they would never dream of doing that until Junior walks home from the wrestling matches with no front teeth and some responsible adult in the house says, hey, ain't the guy that owns that company a fucking billionaire? And suddenly that family living in a single wide trailer has a fucking orthodontist on staff on Tony Khan's dime. I'm surprised there's not more, but still it happens every once in a while. But the guys leave themselves exposed to lawsuits with the crazy fights and brawling in the crowd and throwing objects wild and recklessly and the promoters even more because now the fans are smart enough to know that the promoters are the ones with the money 40 50 years ago they thought the wrestlers were all the big millionaires now they know the promoters are and it's just playing with fire literally in some cases what if 
If Jelly Nutella's flaming boot had flown off his foot and landed in some fucking girl's lap in the front row who was holding a nursing baby, I mean, fuck, it's just ridiculous shit that they do and leave themselves exposed to. How would you, Stephen, handle any of those cases when a guy goes over the railing out into the spectator area of the arena and takes a body slam and on the way up his foot kicks a kid in the face or they do a dive out of the ring and the railing comes and fucking hits the guy's knee and breaks his patella or whatever the case how hard a case would that be for you to cash in on your on for your plaintiffs well uh the answer to every question in law school jim is it depends So let's go ahead and start unpacking a lot of what you just said there. And so, and as another aside, I want to say I love the Cult of Cornette members because uh, Rhonda Shane was the first one that tagged me in that Adult Survivors Act, uh, you know, and was just curious about that and the stuff maybe that had happened at the Garden or in Poughkeepsie or whatever. And there was a Cult of Cornette member that took a sign to an AEW event a few months ago, if you recall, it said, if you come over this rail on me, I'm calling Stephen P. New. It's right <laughs> yeah. in the middle of a Cody yeah. match. So, I mean, I love the cult members and, and, and how much they put me over, uh, like you guys. So, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said there. Uh, and the case, uh, for those of you who want to look it up, uh, is a 1990 case in West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals called Roy and Ruby Matthew v. Jim Crockett Promotions et al., and uh, Mr. Cornette there was one of the defendants in the et al, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. So that's a good primer, a good starter for all of these legal issues. One being that, number one, for a big company like the WWE or AEW or maybe even some of the others like Ring of Honor, MLW, Impact, the, the ticket is and ha- has always been a license to an event and just like any license that license can be revoked at any time that ticket uh it's not a constitutional right it's a license to enter that live event okay so uh that that needs said from the outset now what's happened is in the olden days when i go back and look at my uh, Mid-Atlantic or Jim Crockett Promotions tickets or WWF tickets from the 80s or early 90s, all of the fine print is listed on the bottom in about a .03 font that has <laughs> all of the terms uh, at, at the bottom of a paper ticket. Now it's much more problematic, Jim, because if you're on a ticket service, Uh, like Ticketmaster or StubHub or wherever that you're buying your ticket from, the terms of service have expanded greatly. Uh, And as we've talked about uh, privately with Spectrum, uh, every time you click on that computer, I agree to these terms of service, whatever is in there, you're stuck with. So some of those things uh, won't stick in a court of law. For instance, Uh, assumption of risk and release of liability. You cannot agree in advance to release of liability or you you don't assume the risk by going to a pro wrestling event of having some 300-pound guy land on your leg 
uh, going on a backdrop over the rail or some fireball missing uh, the opponent and coming into your face. Uh, you know, just anything like that. So from is the it, it's, it's the, the same. Rib, it's the same situation that if you are standing, if you go to a football game and you're standing on the sidelines where the team gathers and next to the coach or whatever, and you get accidentally tackled, that's an assumed risk for you putting yourself inside the area cordoned off for the game. But if you were sure. six, six rows back in the general admission seats and the quarterback got launched out of a fucking cannon and landed on you in the, in the bleachers, you would have an actionable case because there's no reasonable expectation when you're sitting six rows back in the bleachers that the game would enter your spectator area. And that, that's, that's the big that's thing exactly that got right. me on a few things because they said there is an area clearly delineated whether it's for the spectators or whether it's for the participants. And when you could prove that area of delineation, the guy who came from the other side was generally found to be at fault, whether it's the fan hopped the rail or the wrestler went over the rail. That's exactly right. Now where these companies get into trouble is when they have these, uh, Falls count anywhere matches or, you know, these guys decide they're just going to fight up into the stands and, you know, all of the stuff that comes along with that. I think they've got some real exposure there because if somebody got badly hurt and a case resulted from that, then uh, I think a judge would have a question of, you know, why was, why were these two guys fighting? you know, up in section 102 <laughs> instead of down in the ring if, if this were a pro wrestling match. So the, the other thing that I'll say, you know, coming back to the spectrum aspect of this is in terms of service, and you guys have heard me rail about this, I unfortunately have to decline Colt of Cornet member cases and cases right here in my own backyard on a far too frequent basis because some people – uh, you know, mostly Republicans have decided to strip Americans of their God-given Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial that's come from the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, to the Constitution, and every state constitution says you have a right to a jury trial. Well, now credit card companies, phone companies, uh, you name it, have inserted an arbitration, mandatory arbitration, and you can't participate in a class action term of service in this fine print that none of us read, myself included, you know, nobody's going to take the time to, to sit there and go through, uh, Brian last may, but none of the rest of us reasonable people <laughs> do, uh, where we read these stupid terms of service. So that's why I said it depends at a show like, oh, let's say uh, Game Changer Wrestling, where, uh, you know, a wrestler lights his boot on fire super kick someone they don't have a fire extinguisher there and then he tosses said flaming boot out on the nursing mother in the second row uh they've probably got some problems because they're not going to have the arbitration clause the uh the the fine print terms of service you assume the risk uh release of liability language things like that so you know the smaller the company it's a double-edged sword. The smaller the company, the less likely they are to be protected by terms of service, the more likely they are to not have a pot to piss in or a lender to throw it out of. 
But you would think that it would be a good rule of thumb for anybody in a professional wrestling bit. And also, here's the thing. The wrestler may think, well, I don't have any money, so I'm not going to get sued. You will get named in the suit because they're going for the promoter's insurance company. But everybody down along the line, sometimes including the arena, will get named in the suit. So you get kicked out of your building because they don't like to get sued. The promoter's going to be sued because you're an agent of the promoter. As you're a professional wrestler on his card, you're going to get sued. And if you're in the match, if you're in the match with somebody else that does something stupid to get sued, you will be sued also because you're part of that match or that performance. So they're going to cover everybody. And in some cases, if the arena is owned by the local city or municipality, they'll sue the fucking city too. Because there's yep. money in there somewhere, but you, Mr. Wrestler, are going to have to be doing depositions and paying, probably paying for an attorney. And a Tony and Vince may take care of it. Some other people may not. That's what I used to have to try to tell the guys when Sinclair Broadcasting bought Ring of Honor. It's not just beloved ticket broker Kerry Silken, who all the fans liked, and he could give you a t-shirt and tickets to the next show. And you'll dick. take your fucking black eye and go home. Thank you, Brian, for interjecting. Yeah, he's a dick. Um, but they would take their black eye and go home, whereas when Sinclair Broadcasting bought the company, I had to tell the guys you can't go out there and do that shit anymore because now they know that a billion-dollar organization is behind this somehow and can be found by attorneys that know what they're doing. So if you're a wrestler, stay on the inside of the guardrail. Do not touch anyone, even to flip their hat off. Um, and it, it, as best you can, when you're flailing furniture and garbage around, it, you know, and throwing it at each other like you're playing dodgeball, don't let that shit fly out in the crowd because if somebody loses an eye, you're going to fucking buy them a new one. Am I right on that, those yep. things, Stephen? I saw a clip the other day of a guy yeah. using a fluorescent light tube and it broke in half and flew into the crowd. I couldn't believe it. Someone's going to yes. sue over that. Well, but see, here's the thing now. Stephen also is smarting me up to people who are judgment-proof. When somebody's got no money, no life, and the only way they're ever going to be known to be famous is by somebody telling the public what the fuck they've done wrong and they want that attention, you can't sue them. Sorry, is somebody going to sue Ian Rotten? He just stole some ring equipment from people and then canceled all his shows. Probably not. Because what's he got? He hadn't even got a pot to piss in or the window to throw it out of. But right. if you're, if or, you're more the belt makers, God, <clears> yeah, God help the, the poor Colts and Cornet members who call me and say, so and so down in Tennessee took $200 to make me a big gold. And they ain't shit my belt to me. I'm like, you know, you can go to small claims court in. Campbell County, Tennessee, and try to sue that guy, but your chances of collecting are slim. And and so, as I've advised Jim on many occasions, yeah, you we can sue whoever you want to, but you're getting practice because you aren't going yeah. to collect <laughs> any, you aren't going to collect anything. But that's the thing is that a lot of wrestlers think, well, I don't have anything, so nobody's going to sue me. But in a situation where that you are connected to someone who has something you will be sued and go through all of that shit. And if it's your fault, you're the fucking fall guy and you're the flunky and they will still, Stephen, you can, 
in situations where you have actually done physical harm to someone with your negligence, they can chase you for years. If you make any money, they'll oh. get some of it. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, Wrestler X may not have any today, but you get the $5 million judgment against him and, and hope to God he either hits the lottery or gets signed to one of the big companies because you'll start going and garnishing wages and taking stuff. I mean, that's the way that that uh, lawsuit collections work. Let me tell you something else that I think interesting. When, when I look at the amount of pyro, the case that I want is uh, the case for the guy who's been either doing pyro or near the pyro at uh, Monday Night Raw for the last 30 years. Because a lot of people here in the July 4th week uh, don't know that fireworks have uh, uh, carcinogens in them uh, when they burn. And those those fumes that come off are carcinogenic, including something as seemingly benign as sparklers. Uh, and so that's the case that I want, is, is the guy who's near the pyro when it goes off in the arena week after week, 52 weeks a year with Monday Night Raw. Well, hey, you want to get some practice? Because I, I was under the uh, the assault of the TNA pyro they used to set off in a broom closet in Orlando for about three years straight. And I've got the tinnitus. Maybe we could practice on <laughs> mine, but <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, listen. For instance, that's why we don't have fireworks at the, um, uh, at Mount Rushmore anymore. There is so much toxic, uh, material, uh, residue at, uh, Mount Rushmore the federal government banned fireworks displays there. If the, the, there's no matter what the natural wonder is, human beings can fuck it up some kind of way. But here, here's the thing: sure before can. we get out of here, you got a couple of other things going on um, that I wanted you to mention because obviously the thing has been ongoing with the the babies that were born addicted to opioids connected to the opioid crisis that West Virginia's had, Kentucky's had all over, uh, all over the country, but especially the Southeast. Um, and then they tried to, they got you, everybody, they, the company got a judgment against them and then tried to bankrupt it. So they wouldn't have to pay it after they were already pretty much forced to admit what they had done. And you're still working on those and those are coming to fruition. And also understand that you're you're going to hit the road, Stephen. You're traveling thanks to some of the cult of cornet referrals. Uh, that that is exactly right, Jim. And then let me just go ahead and tell you that we started the first 18 uh, cases for addicted babies here in West Virginia. And to give the cult members and the listeners an idea, there is an array of 75 corporations that have been sued in that litigation. And so I hope that in the next few months or the next year that I get to come on here on the show with you and Brian as a thank you for always, you know, reminding the cult members and the listeners to, to what it is that we're doing. But that case is so near and dear to my heart. And, and if you ever spent any time with these children who didn't choose to do anything, they, they, they didn't go to the doctor and get prescribed this stuff. Uh, but these children are really suffering on, on a nationwide basis. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in damage. And unless these corporations are held responsible, that'll just get shifted over onto the public to deal with. But I'm taking my show on the road, Jim, <laughs> place that you're greatly familiar with, uh, that being New Orleans, Louisiana. Oh, boy. Over the, last, over the last month or two here, I've had a lot of lawyers reach out to me. One who was a cult 
member and listener to the show. He had a friend down in Maryland, and the friend said, look, I, I got this really great case. It's a wrongful death. There's a result of uh, DUI, and, and you know, I, I need to refer it out, need to bring somebody in. He said, you need to call that Stephen P. New guy, and I'm going to be doing that case soon and had some lawyers who uh, heard about me. Uh, it, it has to do with the wake of Hurricane Ida and the energy, the, the electricity went out in New Orleans, Louisiana, in the wake of Hurricane Ida uh, for about three weeks. And the winds never got uh, above 94 miles an hour, mostly. And uh, the, the energy, the energy company for Louisiana had taken money and grants from the federal and state governments and had certified to the city of New Orleans and Louisiana, hey, these towers will stand in the face of 150-mile-an-hour winds, and we're going to go in and we're going to reinforce the metal and put big guy wires up, and these towers are never going to fall. And then they fell. And people on dialysis machines and other medical equipment, they had no power for long periods of time. Uh, their businesses uh, were greatly damaged, uh, you know, and imagine you're in the middle of a hurricane and your power is out for 10 days. Uh, you know, you might be prepared for something like that, Jim. I might be prepared. Uh, I'm sure that Brian is in last manner, but if you're in an apartment in a ninth ward in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, going five or 10 days without power with no idea when it's going to come back on, and a child to take care of or an elderly person, uh, that's that's really scary. And, and the damages are huge in this case. Uh, we just got sent back to state court out of federal court. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward. I go down next week to be admitted temporarily in the great state of Louisiana. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to getting down there. But I can't say thank you enough to all the cult members who call in. Some people just want to chat sometimes, uh, you know, and a lot of the cult members, I, I can't take their cases either. I don't specialize or there's terms of service like arbitration or you can't participate in a class action. But if my schedule allows and, and my specialization in that area of the law allows it, uh, I, I love doing cases for your listeners, Jim. And that's newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. But I'll tell you, well, while you're down there in Louisiana, hop over next door to Texas because their electric grid leaves a bit to be desired. Maybe you could, I think uh, Tesla himself must have wired Louisiana and Texas and they've left it alone since then. Maybe you could fix them up too. Well, I, I, I don't know. Uh, under their current leadership, you know, Abbott seems to say that He's got everything completely under control down there. So uh, uh, maybe maybe we give Beto O'Rourke a chance <laughs> down there in Texas and, and see how well he could maybe do some things. And uh, you know, I think that they ought to on they, fossil fuels and uh, and think outside the box some more. But they they got a lot of problems in Texas. They ought to they ought to split. Te it's big enough. They ought to split Texas in half. Give the left side, no pun intended, to Beto. Give the right side to Abbott and see who comes out the best. We could draw the line maybe right down through the middle of San Antonio. Somebody would have to take the Joe and Harry Freeman Coliseum. Anyway, uh, Stephen, we appreciate you being on the program. Talk about a few of these things. Um, legally, 
relating to professional wrestling and other things. And remember, if anybody needs any assistance, he's a busy man, but he's got more energy than all of us. Stephen P. New at 888-692-8084. Oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I did it again. Just <laughs> twice in the same segment. <laughs> all right. And Jim, we didn't even have to talk about the dew point. I appreciate you. <laughs> uh, showing love and, and mentioning my beloved daughter Rebecca recently. Uh, yes, Louisville right. is the epicenter of climate change. Rebecca sent me the documentation, and now I know why that the dew point yesterday was seventy-five, and it got to be hundred and one, which was the hottest day in Louisville, Kentucky, in the past ten years. Oh my! Anyway. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap it up and go back to our regularly scheduled program. Brian will take back over, so folks, it's all downhill from here, and I mean that in an entertainment fashion. Stephen, thank you for being on the program, and what do we got next, oh great one? Well, there it is, Jim. Once again, our conversation with Stephen Pinu, who we talk about every week, and see, he likes us, even despite the awful things you say about him each week in these spots i never say a bad thing about anybody that's that's all mere conjecture and rumor can i ask you an honest question well if only if you don't want an honest answer no go ahead how much of the i don't even know what to call it the anger towards you from contemporary wrestlers from certain contemporary wrestlers we're going to be completely factual here how much of it do you think is based around the fact that you haven't accepted them, for lack of a better term? You haven't put your arm around them. You haven't said, you know what? This person's got something. Do you think these people were fickle enough that if things had gone different, if you had been, you know what? I think Kenny and the Bucks are really on to something new. If you had gone completely that way, would all the people who have a problem with you like you? And would all the people that like you have a problem with you? Well, yeah, it would just flip-flop because then all of the, you know, uh, the the kids, the Lollipop Guild fans, they would love me to death because they, oh, look, Cornette, he loves our little flippy-doo fellows. But then all of my current audience would say, what the fuck? You're just the same way as all of them. We can't get any good wrestling anymore, and now even Cornette won't fucking take up for us. So I prefer to just err on the side of safety and go with... A, my true opinions, and B, 80% of the audience. Because as we've mentioned, if I've got the percentage of the audience that is disgusted by modern wrestling and doesn't watch it anymore, that means I got 80% of them. They can keep the 20% that'll still fucking swallow their tongue and watch this shit. I'll go for the 80, they go for the 20. Well, Jim, let's go to one of the people out there who listen. Big Andy in Louisville, Kentucky sent in this question, and we talk about the fact that sometimes we, or you specifically, will mention someone or something and use a term that not everyone may know. Here's Big Andy's question. Okay. I've been hearing the term spot show for almost two years now. Oh, good Lord. And while I understand what spots and shows are, <laughs> I have not heard, and I'm very curious as to what the actual definition of a spot show is. I was hoping you could update your new listeners on the meaning. Well, you know, actually, that's like, what's the meaning of bread? But then, as you start thinking about it, they don't have spot shows anymore, so I guess the equivalent, if it was like, what's bread? would The problem is, they don't sell bread anymore. If If you hadn't 
had bread available in 25 years, would it still be, would people be asking what's bread? I guess they would. Um, a spot show in wrestling, in the territories, there were basically two different kinds of house shows. There was your regular house shows in your regular towns that you ran every week or every two weeks or every month, whatever territory it was. If, if it was the Memphis territory, your regular weekly house shows were Memphis, Louisville, Evansville, Indiana, Nashville, Tennessee. Then various other times, other towns might have been weekly, Jackson, Tennessee, or whatever the case. In Florida, it would have been Tampa, Orlando, uh, Miami Beach, Jacksonville, whatever the case. Spot shows were shows that were only run once a year, or once every six months, or once in a while. The little high school gyms, the smaller towns that weren't regular towns, that was a spot show because you went to the spot, had a show. I don't know how they exactly named it that, but a spot show was a house show that was in a smaller town or not a town that you regularly ran. And it was just to go make like a little personal appearance. And and we've talked about these spot shows in, in some territories. You'd go to a little high school gym or a school gym somewhere or a rec center. And there would be more people in that building than there would be in the population of that particular town because they would come from all over if you were out in the woods. That's a spot show. That's why, you know, again... You had to learn in the territory days to work two different kinds of matches at least because you had your house show match where you're in the big town, you're coming back in two weeks with a return match, you got to hit the finish, got thousands of people there, you have to fucking be on your toes. On a spot show, the people are just glad to see you in person. They don't see anybody else from television in Dungannon, Virginia or Clarefield, Tennessee. I went to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I saw Knoxville. I saw Johnson City. When I went to Lenore, North Carolina, is that a spot right. show? Lenore was kind of a spot show. We would run Lenore two or three times a year. Lenore, Morganton, one or the other, because we had a small TV station, uh, WHKY TV 14 in Hickory. It's now Hickory, North Carolina, that is. I Like everybody knows where Hickory is. It's now a some kind of news or weather station on full cable coverage in Charlotte. But at the time, it was a low-power independent in Hickory. So we would run a few times a year off of that. So it's kind of not really one or the other. But if you, you went to, again, Wise, Virginia, or Sneedville, Tennessee, or Everts, Kentucky, that was a spot show. And that was purely, again, the match. The people see you in person. You got a lot of kids, so you're not going to be trying to, you know, commit mayhem and have a lot of blood and chair shots and everything. You're having crowd-pleasing, entertaining matches where the baby face goes over usually in the end. And that's a spot show. And that's a little bit less of a payoff, so you do a little bit less of dangerous shit. You don't take big bumps. You, that's where you learn to work people and to entertain people without putting mileage on your body. Because the spot, if you weren't wrestling a house show, you were wrestling a spot show. Because did we mention in the territories, you didn't get days off every once in a while. But 
these guys now will wrestle once or twice a week and they will do everything they know. Whereas when guys were doing 10 matches a week, every week, including TV tapings, you had to ascertain the importance of each and decide how much of yourself you were going to put on the line and how good you were at making people happy and entertained without realizing that you weren't killing yourself. And some guys were mastered. Bill Dundee could have the best wrestling match that you've ever seen in your life with Billy Robinson. Go 40 minutes, be completely serious, fucking snug work, goddamn hell of a display. Or he could go out at a spot show and he could do 20 minutes and have the people standing up and throwing babies in the air and hardly ever fall down. Because, of course, now the heels are taking plenty of bumps. But it just it's two different kinds of thing. But that's a spot show, a smaller town that's run irregularly and is basically there to fill in your schedule in between the regular towns where you make the most of your money. And I guess to put it in modern terms, when you say there are no more spot shows, when you run barely any house shows at all, clearly there would be no spot shows because you yeah. don't have house shows. Yeah, there's, I mean, now everything is just a show of some description because even if, even if you're in a little small high school gym somewhere, if that's the only show you're running that month, you, that ain't a spot show, that's your show. And there are really no such thing as spot shows anymore. A, a maybe... Joe Kazana might be running them down in South Tennessee because he's old school, but the idea of a spot show was that the local football team at the high school needs new uniforms. So the booster club calls the wrestling promotion, says, can you bring a show here live to our school to raise money for our uniforms? You know, and the, and the sponsor group gets 25% of the gate and the food and drink concession, and in return provides the building rent-free and all of the local advertising for free. And then the, the, the wrestling promotion just shows up with the fucking ring and puts on the show, and that's so you pay the boys and you pay the ring crew, and all the rest of the money goes back to the office because... You had no other expenses because the local sponsoring group did everything for you. And if they did it well and you guided them right, then they got everybody in town to come and buy a $5 ticket and they make money and you make money. And that was the way that every territory wrestling promotion filled in their schedules. And in some cases, like I mentioned, you know, it, you could, it could be a death of a thousand miseries where you show up at some place in the middle of nowhere and you got 72 people there, or it could be in Biloxi, not Biloxi, but uh, Bogalusa, Louisiana, as we mentioned before, where Watts did a spot show one time and drew over 4,000 people to the high school football field in Bogalusa. That was a spot show. By God, the Mid-South Wrestling carted home somewhere around 20-something thousand dollars that night. So it, it just depends. All right, Jim, well, our next question sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from Ben in New Britain, Connecticut. 
Ben, the two of us need look no more. We both found what we were looking for. The first signs there was something wrong. The love song to the rat. But anyway, here's the song. Uh, here's rats the, are rats are not email. only Excuse very me. loving, very loving creatures, but they're actually very clean. They get a bad reputation because of their wild ass outlaw sewer rat cousins. But just the regular old rat you buy in a pet store. Lovely little friend. Well, we'll agree to disagree on that. But here's Ben's question. As a fan who started in the early 90s, my historical wrestling education has always been lacking. I was fascinated by your dive into the Irish whip a little while back. I was hoping you could shine some light on another kayfabe straining maneuver. <laughs> the Flair Flop. Oh, boy. Was Flair's cartoonish bump more realistic in the old days? Was Flair just so over, nobody questioned it? If a present-day wrestler sold like that, would Jim verbally castrate them? Thank you for keeping the history of pro wrestling alive. I might not castrate him, but I might castigate him. Um, the, the face-first bump, and Flair wasn't the first person to ever do that in wrestling, for fuck's sake. Um, it come, you know, it, it's something, it's a heel bump. Originally started as a heel bump. Flair then would do it a lot of times, even when he was a babyface, just because people expected it. But basically, boom, the fucking heel gets a blow of some kind, punch or elbow, boom, and stiffens him up, and he just timber and boom, and it's a, a crowd-pleasing bump for a pompous, you know, cheating, lying, unpopular heel to literally fall on his face. You always want to see the comeuppance, whether it's, Margaret Dumont, the socialite <laughs> dowager in a Marx Brothers movie, or Ric Flair, the heel in a wrestling match. Stop. You, well, what? No. Well, no you, you feel bad for her. You don't feel bad for Margaret Dumont? I never felt bad. That's the whole idea is the, the anarchistic Marx Brothers are taking the piss out of pomposity. Any point is you want to see people that are pompous fall on their face or whatever and heels have done it. And then flair started doing it, but then flair, it, I guess, I guess that's like Austin's I'm going to stomp a mud hole in you. The stomps don't look good. We've said this a million times, but because Austin was so over, well, it got to the point where flair started doing these things. And because everything he did was over, Everybody wanted to see it, whether they were for him or again, they wanted to see him do his shit. And then again, as everything happens, the move starts getting prostituted or the bump, or then it starts being a little bit more comical where he'll walk around the ring and talk to the referee and then fall over a delayed flare flop. I, you know, I like the face first that heels do every once in a while. I don't, know that I've ever seen anything that I wanted somebody to do in every single match like that. If it was somebody else, I'd get on them worse. But when, you know, you've got to grade on a curve when you're talking about a guy that's one of the greatest in history of the business, but he's got these three or four things that he just will not stop doing. And I can't be a fan of all of them, but I think that's a minor if that's what you can criticize Flair for is it relates to holes in his in-ring game, 
with his track record and his success and longevity, eh, I'm not going to fucking, my head's not going to explode over that. But again, as, as what was the questioner's name? Oh, I just moved this question. Hold on. Well, whatever his name is. So whatever your name is, the point is if it's some fucking schlub that's never done anything good anywhere and has no fucking talent, no look and no cachet in the industry, and he's going to start doing Flair's face first flop too. Well then, yeah, I'm going to rip him a new asshole because why you can't even do your own shit. You're going to do somebody else's, but yeah, you got to give Flair a few there, and that's one of them. All right, Jim, our next question sent to CornyDriveThru at gmail.com from Rob Lindsay in Renton, Washington, the city where Jimi Hendrix is buried. I have a question for you about local TV reporters in the territory days. Let me preface this by giving you a couple of quick memories. <laughs> First, when I was growing up in Cincinnati in the early 1980s, the local TV news broadcast would sometimes include a recap of the previous night's wrestling matches at the Cincinnati Gardens. Wonder, I wonder if that was uh, Crockett or was that the WWF by that point? They were included in the nightly sports report along with the baseball and basketball scores. Also, I remember watching an Atlanta TV news broadcast circa 1982 in which a TV reporter did a locker room interview with a babyface wrestler. Of course, in the middle of the interview, Two heels came running in to give the baby face a beatdown. <laughs> My point is, there was a time in the pre-Hulk Hogan era when TV news channels considered pro wrestling to be a semi-legitimate sport. The TV news stations would send their reporters and cameramen out to the local arenas to cover the matches and interview the wrestlers. And as I said, would include those matches and interviews in their nightly sports reports. My question for you, Jim, is... How do you handle local TV news reporters in the territory days at the Cincinnati Gardens or elsewhere? And did you ever have a TV reporter pressure you to break kayfabe and admit that pro wrestling was, quote, fake? Well, how would that happen? Are they going to have a member of my family they're holding hostage unless I spill my guts? Uh, pressure? I don't care what anybody said to me. If I was doing a television interview with a regular TV news reporter and somebody even insinuated that their wrestling was in any way not on the up and up, I would immediately fire back and probably win the argument because I was used to making it, whereas that was just one of a million stories about different things that that guy was going to do. There was never any pressure to it. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I've either got to admit that wrestling is fake or what? Punch the fucking guy or just not do the interview. If any reporter or television radio personality, whatever, was interviewing you and was insisting going on that the business was phony, most of the time, you would just fucking tell him off and cut the interview. If you couldn't joust with him verbally and, and hold your side up with that as well, there was no pressure to, I, I guess I'm going to have to admit this. And it would and did in the in some cases, as we've talked about, would get physical if the guy got up in the wrestler's face too much about it. Yeah, it's funny, too. It turned out the guys who admitted it on camera weren't the ones asked about it. They were the ones who sought out someone to tell it to. Yes. 
the people who were asked and tried to be put on the spot were the people who said, fuck you, get in the ring with me, I'll show you what's fake. The people that were trying to get publicity and calling the reporters, they're the ones that were saying it was fake. But uh, regardless, the point is, it, with uh, television news, it depended, again, on the location and the time period. In the mid-'80s, a lot of local TV news stations all over the country started doing articles started doing you know pieces on wrestling because vince's expansion uh tv was getting hot the, the war between crockett the nwa and the wwf uh, big crowds were being drawn it drew out a lot more of the local tv news in places that didn't normally cover wrestling i've told a story before that a lot of times and i've seen christine jarrett do it she would not allow TV news crews in the Louisville Gardens, for example, I watched her run them off one night from WHAS because she said, the last time y'all came down here and did a story on my my business last year, you insulted my business and you insulted my fans. Well, I've got 4,000 people in there without your publicity. I don't need your kind of publicity. And she wouldn't let them come in. But there were also places where because of the the fact that wrestling was in kind of the local cultural fabric, um, it, Sam Muchnick in St. Louis had started out as a sports writer back in the 1930s, and he knew every local politician, every local media person in the newspaper, later on in radio. Later on, he was hooked up with one of the most successful business executives in town, Harold Coppler of KPLR-TV. Sam Muchnick got great press from the newspapers or the television for the most part. In Memphis, the original host of Memphis Wrestling on TV for a very brief period of time was a guy named Big Jack Eaton that later on was the main sportscaster at Channel 5 in the 80s, and well through the 70s and 80s. And they aired clips on those newscasts. And they aired clips on those newscasts. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times... The only thing is they couldn't get the main event in because they were on central time down there in Memphis and they would send a crew over and, and shoot some footage of the earlier matches and then they would read the results, but they couldn't have footage of the main event because they were already almost on television. But again, in Charlotte, um, oh gosh, what was the guy at WSOC Channel 9? There was a sportscaster at Channel 9. He actually rode in the helicopter with Flair when Flair made his helicopter entrance at Memorial Stadium in Charlotte in front of almost 30,000 people. But then again, you've got something in Charlotte that drew almost 30,000 people to a live event. The TV news is going to cover it, but wrestling was familiar to everybody in the Carolinas. So what about the thing in 88 with you? Because you're in great shape there. It's the one thing I yes. remember about it, where you're playing tennis with the guy and you're talking to the guy. Yeah. How did that get set up? Um, that got set up by the TV station contacting Crockett and saying, Hey, we'd like to do something with Cornette because I know this sounds egotistical and, or, you know, ridiculous these days, but when they did pieces or stories on the top Crockett wrestlers at that time period, it helped the ratings of the local news. That's how big wrestling was in Charlotte. So they did a, um, oh God, I've got the tape from the TV station. I've still got the three-quarter inch tape. 
the master, but it was a two-part segment or story on me on the local six o'clock news. And the guy went and we went to a tennis court. And of course I've worked that I couldn't figure out how to play tennis and I couldn't had, I tried to jump yeah. over the net and you worked all that, that yeah. stuff. Well, yeah, it, it, but I was being <laughs> Bobby Heenan. Yeah. I was doing Bobby Heenan. And then we had to sit down in an interview where I did the best I could to explain why people sometimes thought that wrestling was not on the up and up, but I can assure you, blah, blah, blah. And they, and it was like a 10 minute piece, five minutes, one night, five minutes, the next night up close and personal type of thing, whatever. And that was, it was a bigger deal sometimes in some case, especially when they did something on flair or the, the news reports on Magnum's accident that helped the ratings of the local news more than it helped the wrestling company. Cause we were bigger than the local news. And we talked about it with the death of David Von Erich. That was a case where the local news was late and picking up how big the story was. And then they jumped all over it. Yeah. And, and then they realized, wait a minute, we have completely ignored a massive section of our population where this cu pop culture thing has been happening under our noses. And then they started covering wrestling closer in Dallas on the downhill slide of world class than they, because they had completely missed the explosion. And by the time they started catching up, the mainstream news in Dallas, it was already on the way down. But but that's the thing, independent. And in New York, of course, you were never going to get a break. And in Los Angeles, they were all going to be snide sportscasters about the phony wrestling. But in the days of the territories where the promoter was a big deal in town, where the television shows had high ratings and wrestling had somewhat of a good name, you would foster good relationships with the local media, newspaper, radio, TV stations. And a lot of those people were fans of the wrestling. So there you would get positive publicity. Other places you'd get negative publicity. Either the territory had gone out of business, Ohio after the chic, where they, they weren't really beholden to any local promotion and the business already had kind of a, a bad name. And then after the modern expansion, then now nobody really grows up being a fan of their local wrestling because there is none. So you just have to see, do I have a fan that works at a radio station or a TV station in a place I'm going to run a show? And if so, I'll try to, you know, expand that relationship. But it's not like there are tons of people in a major media market at um, a, a broadcast television station that are actively watching the show that's on their station every week and really big fans of it like there were in the territory days because it's not there available for them anymore. With Mid-South Wrestling and the way Watts controlled things, especially in Louisiana, you know, we saw on TV in like 83, Buddy Nichols would do commentary on some of the matches that didn't matter. He was the news director in one of the TV stations. So that was, I guess, a case of embracing the local news personalities that like wrestling and bringing them in closer. Yeah. But still kind of making sure they're not getting too close. Yeah. And, and I mean, for years, uh, the ring announcers in Louisville, Kentucky were DJs from Wacky Radio, W-A-K-Y. It, it started with uh, Johnny Randolph 
who we used to call him John Turnbuckle Randolph. And that's what the other DJs would call him on the air. Johnny Flying Mayor Randolph. He was also the program director. And he's the one that was instrumental in setting up the deal where Lawler wrestled Coyote Calhoun and sold the fucking Louisville Garden slap dab out. Um, Coyote was another DJ. He was the the top 46 to 10 p.m. guy that later on became a Country Music Association DJ of the Year. Um, and then Bob Moody, who was also a, then became the program director when Johnny Randolph had left. So for years, you would hear the DJs just in their patter just in their conversations talking about the wrestling matches. And it helped spread the word to a younger audience because when Jarrett opened up Louisville, the primary audience for the wrestling matches and the live events, and they were drawing big crowds. Louisville popped pretty quick and was strong for years. They were older. They were middle-aged because they had been fans from the early 60s and the late 50s and the mid-50s with the Allen Athletic Club and Barnett's Indianapolis office. And they had had no, no wrestling for four or five years there to go to. So when it came back and those people found the TV show, then they said it was an older crowd. And you'd see babies that were being held by their older parents or grandparents or whatever. But then. Jerry Jarrett was the start of it, but then here comes, by 1973, Lawler comes in, he's a little bit younger, and then Ricky Gibson, and now you start seeing the girls. And part of the girl audience, the teenage girls, was listening to Wacky Radio, because that was the top 40 station. I mean, this was before FM, and then WLRS, the walrus comes in, and they play album rock, and... Everybody listening to that in 1977 was too stoned to go to the matches. But you establish those relationships, and that helps you spread your audience to different people because I guarantee you, no 15, 16 year old girls were watching Don and Al Green against Jackie Fargo and Tojo Yamamoto. But when you threw young blonde haired Jerry Jarrett and that fucking little sexy rock star looking Ricky Gibson in the mix and then some more young guys and then Dundee all of a sudden the Louisville Gardens is 50% female and they're half of them are under 35 instead of over and that came from expanding the way that the audience by the method of the way people were talking about the company talking about wrestling and who was talking about it that's just that's the way you do it all right jim well a couple more things before we wrap things up i have something here that many listeners have been sending in for the last few days i'm trying to see where this is from it's a quote from a chris jericho interview on the true gordy podcast i believe it would be true about gordy i thought that was terry gordy well this is about vince mcmahon paying hush money to a paralegal here's a quote from chris jericho give your thoughts afterwards when you look at it, it's really not illegal. He had an affair. <laughs> Paid wait off a, the lady. Not to, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The first words out of his mouth, he was well, not illegal. He had an affair. Paid the lady off not to say anything and moved on. It's almost like, okay, and it was a mutual acknowledgement of the affair. He paid the lady to say nothing. She took the money. 
I really know Vince well, and it sucks that happened. It sucks that he did it. But is anything really going to happen from it? I don't think so. Is it morally right? Absolutely not. Is it illegal? No. Is it something that is going to get him into real trouble? I don't yes. think so. <laughs> he doesn't think so? That's how it ends? I don't think so. So what are your thoughts on Chris Jericho's opining on the Vince McMahon scandals? What was this before or after they came out with another $9 million worth of NDAs and several, including members of the roster, the talent roster, that uh, that Vince was... Well, he said it sucks, but I think in, in this case, the other talent was doing the sucking. So this was just, this was before or after that? Or do we know? I do not know. Uh, these so basically, in... Chris, Chris Jericho, the, well, now we found out that he's a religious nut and also in favor of the overthrow of the government of the United States, but Vince can basically use the steno pool as his own private hoorer house and well it is not morally right but it's not illegal somebody may be wanting a hall of fame induction and or one last run and trying not to uh close that door because it better happen soon there's only so much botox in the world i was about to say well you know but hey did you have you seen Mickey Rourke lately? He's had something else done. He's looking good. He and Chris could form a team. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> again, you know, it's I I've said the same thing. I don't know how they're going to force Vince out. So I don't know how that bad outcome is going to happen because he's got the stock and everything stacked in his favor, but we can't say nothing's going to happen or this is not going to be a big deal or it's not going to affect anything. Chris is downplaying it because Chris still wants a place to go after Tony Khan has an Adderall induced stroke or heart attack or whatever. But to downplay that in that way, no, I, and, I, and, and again, does Chris think it's okay just because it was the paralegal, the illegal paralegal, or is it okay now even though it was members of the roster that didn't necessarily want to fucking gobble Vince's goober, but did it on the thought that, well, I guess I better gobble this goober or elsewise I'm going to be selling him on a street corner. And regardless of who the the uh, roster member was that got the big payoff for doing things they weren't supposed to do or didn't want to do or whatever. Still the point, I, I'm not saying that I've heard a few names bandied around. I will say that one of those ladies, I don't think will suck a dick, but will hold one in her mouth till the swelling goes down. But still it's not right to be coerced by your, it's fine to be paid. But it's not right to be coerced. And that's where I draw the line. If it's a business transaction and everybody's happy with it, if the purchaser is happy with the sale price, if the seller is happy with the purchase price, and all things being equal, I believe all transactions should be final in that. I can't see bringing anything from that transaction back for a goddamn refund. But... Um, but when you make somebody or coerce somebody to do something they don't want to do even for the money, well, that's where you got to draw a line. 
All right. Well, Jim, before we draw the line and wrap things should, up. Should we should we write that down and transcribe that in case any of the companies out there want to use that in their human resources manuals? I'm not sure if they're going to want to do that, but there may be a few websites that try to use it to get a few clicks. But, Jim, before we wrap things up, a few Gordon Soley trivia questions. Are you ready for this? Uh-oh. All righty. Give it to me, baby. I'm ready for it. I'll tell you what. I'm going to answer everything 100%. <laughs> Maybe 85. Which wrestler named Baron employed a great skill, the claw? Excuse well, me. Employed with great skill, the claw. Employed a great skill. The, <laughs> it was Jim the Claw Mitchell, a guy from Minnesota from the early 80s. Uh, that would be Baron von Raschke, a.k.a. Baron von Pumpkin. Of which association was Willie Gilsenberg once president? WWWF. Which wrestler is known for his off-the-top-rope axe-handle maneuver? Oh, now, wait. Well, that could be Randy Savage, because the time period of the game, I would have to think that would be what it was. But nevertheless, other people have done that. It's Randy Savage, that is correct. And remember, the time period of the game is the late 80s. Right. Yup! Am I going to spend another $5,000? Uh-oh. I don't know who the fuck that is. There we go. A, a phone number from Campbell, California, with a 669 area code, has been calling me and not leaving messages. Campbell, California, isn't it? That's where Dave Meltzer's from, right? I did, but it, it ain't. I've, I've had his number. I had his number as soon as he walked in the door, and that ain't it. I don't know. Maybe it's his next door neighbor. Maybe Dave's causing a stir in the neighborhood, pining for his lost friendships. The following wrestlers all play professional football Ernie Ladd. Wahoo McDaniel, Blackjack Mulligan, and Paul Orndorff. True or false? Okay, well, definitely yes, Ernie Ladd. Definitely yes, Wahoo. Orndorff played for the USFL. Wyndham, Blackjack Mulligan, was... Now, was the story he was... The story was he was drafted by the Jets, but did he never played for the Jets? Or, or another team, am I thinking of the wrong team? Let me start by saying I'm not sure how accurate this is or isn't, but it says true that all four played in the NFL. I mean, there was, there was involvement. Well, professional football. Well, Paul, well, no, the professional football, not yeah. the NFL. See, there's the – Orndorff, uh, I believe it was – if it wasn't the USFL, it was some other – offshoot of football rather than the NFL. And uh, there was something with Bob Windham and the Jets, and I can't remember whether he actually played or not, but loosely that is true. I think you're thinking of Benny and the Jets, but let's move on here, Jim. Benny and the Jets. Bob Roop wrestled for the U.S. in which Olympics? Uh, That would be none of them. Did he, did, he didn't go to the Olympics, did he? Did he, didn't he go to like, he was the Pan Am champion, Pan Am games. Did he really go to the Olympics? It says 68 Mexico city. Well, that was he on the team. Did he go? Did he wrestle? We got to delve into that a little deeper. Hold on. Let me see what we can find real quick. We'll take a quick break from the game action to see what we can find out about Bob Roop. He was the NAAU All-American, uh, NA. NAAU champion. National Amateur Athletic Union is what you're going for there. Yeah, I'm looking to see Olympics here. I mean, that was what was told for years on wrestling television. And no doubt Bob was a a shooter. Oh, well, here here we go. It says 
Roop was 25 years old, 6 feet 2 inches tall, and weighed 270 pounds, entering the games in Mexico City in 1968. Okay. The team was coached by legendary wrestling coach Henry Wittenberg. Roop finished in 7th place, losing to Alexander Medved, who went on to win the gold medal. I remember Medved from 72, and he was a badass, those Russians. Then remember, that's when Chris Taylor got fucking jobbed by the Russians. So Medved was a badass. Only next to the weightlifter, Vasily Alexiev, gave Ken Patera all kinds of trouble. Which tag team was known as the High Flyers? Ganyan Brunzel. Who had a role in the movie Wise Guys with Danny DeVito. Lou Albano. Captain Lou Albano. Just get it right. Okay, I'm sorry. True or false, each wrestling federation, in its rules, sets the percentage of a manager's share of the wrestler's purse. That, that would be false. <laughs> would indeed be false. True or false, Lonzo Washington defeated Luthez in a non-sanctioned NWA title match in 1943. Who is Lonzo Washington? That is false, by the way, but is, is that, <laughs> that an actual person? I'm going to guess it may be someone who worked on the game, if I had to make a okay, guess here. Okay. That is indeed false. Whom did Vern Gagne defeat in Chicago in the summer of 1980 to begin his ninth reign as AWA World Heavyweight Champion? Oh, God, was that, that's when he won it from Bockwinkle for the last time, right? That is correct, and I wanted to okay. ask you, what did you think of that? I mean, you weren't really watching the AWA, I don't think, in 1980. But what did you think about the idea that Vern won the title one last time and also that Vern retired without dropping it? Me and Weasel Dooley both laughed and cackled and guffawed over the... It was bad because even at that point, Vern Gagne had been huge. Vern Gagne was an NCAA heavyweight wrestling champion for real. Vern Gagne was one of the first major network TV stars and wrestling in the early 50s. That's how he got the name to go and, and buy his home territory, create the AWA. He was successful there for years and years, but now it just got ridiculous that by 1980-81, here's Vern bald as a cue ball on top, which he had been for 20 years, but now he's also fat with no discernible body tone and he still works the early 50s style and it's 30 years later and you know basically it was the name and his ego because Bachwinkle was just a little bit younger but my god could he go and there were other people that Vern could have got at that point to carry the AWA in the future but because he was set to retire he decided he's going to go out as champion and not only beats Bockwinkle and wins the belt back for the last time, but then didn't drop his retirement match. In, in what was it, 81? He was 56 years old and retired as undefeated world champion. And then they just gave the belt back to Nick because they were too either cheap or time pressed to do a tournament. So that was. That's what, I mean, they still had a few more hot years, but it wasn't because of Vern. It was because of Hogan and a, a lot of Bachwinkle's work and getting everything to work up there. And some of the other guys, they had, you know, two more hot years, but even the, the smart fans were just laughing until they pissed themselves about Vern. But even the 
the the regular fans that weren't smart of that era were starting to go, wait a minute, what the fuck? This is just way too much. Which wrestler's first professional victory came in Montreal, Canada over Ferdinand Fursgaud? Oh, what? Now, wait, hold on. This is either got to be a trick. Was it Mad Dog Vachon? Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan? His first match was where and for, for who? In Montreal, Canada. And again, coming out of New England, that's not outrageous. Against Ferdinand Fursgaud. See, I, I'm thinking that sounds like a name that Kevin Sullivan would have loved to have just said to make up. And since he was in Florida about the time that this game was created, because I've known Kevin for a long time, he never told me his first match was in Montreal. I believe Burlington, Vermont, but not Montreal for Ferdinand the, the Cow or whatever. Which tag team challenged to wrestle Ali, Frazier, and Foreman in one night? I have no idea because I'm sure that was a magazine article that was made up. The Valiant Brothers. Okay, Johnny, Jimmy, and Jerry. Who's known as the Polish Hammer? Ivan Paduski, according to Jesse Ventura. True or false, a wrestler under 4'11 is classified as a midget under all <laughs> recognized wrestling rules. There are no height classifications for midgets. And therefore, that's why you get a, a, a large range of midget heights. It is indeed false. On August 29th, 1982, Nick Bockwinkel lost the AWA World Heavyweight belt to this Austrian-born grappler. Who was he? Otto Vons. What did you think of that when that happened? Oh, but well, I was starting to get a little bit smarter to the business. I was almost in it. And at that point... You could recognize a, a business match, you know, a business title change. When you, Otto Vons was the owner of his own promotion in Austria, and they did the catch wrestling, and he had tours that he brought Americans over, and he had enough money that he made a deal with Vern to buy the belt for a while. And that's the way that Baba did the same thing in Japan, so did... Enoki um, did the same thing. Enoki. NWF. When, you know, when you have the the money to do that, you can do that. And it then you can claim to have been a world champion and it helps your own promotion. So, but yeah, but it was a fucking, and Weasel Dooley was not an Otto Vons fan either. I don't think any, any American was whatsoever. Cause it was just like, it was like wrestling a bowling ball with boots. Who was known as the Italian connection? That was uh Parisian Serdan. Was it not? Uh, it says here Parisian Danucci, but I think you may be right. I think I am right. Which wrestler once owned a home insulation company? <laughs> I don't know, but I wish I had his number right now. Buddy Colt. Ah, Buddy Colt. Ron Reed. Fill in the blank. A snap blank. <laughs> Decision. No. <laughs> snap mare. Well, I wouldn't even know that. Well, I guess just based on the territory. Where did the 1987 UWF Wrestling Spectacular Super Blast take place? Well, somewhere in uh, uh, the state of Louisiana, I would imagine, but um, the Superdome? It says New Orleans Superdome. It should have in parentheses, most likely the lowest crowd ever. I'm just going to guess, but <laughs> yeah. how did I forget the name of it was Super Blast? And you know what? I... 
I use Summer Blast in Smoky Mountain, and I don't remember Super Blast either. I must have stolen it from somewhere else. The NWA allows gambling on the outcome of wrestling matches by wrestlers, managers, and referees. True or false? I'm thinking that may be a, a big white lie. That's correct. I was about to say that's true, but it's not true. That's correct. It's false. <laughs> what I said was true. Which wrestler was known as the Rubber Man? Johnny Walker. Which popular wrestler earned the name Slingshot because he always snaps back from defeat? <laughs> okay, that that uh, I may need some. Can I phone a friend? Um, I have none. I'll have to buy a vowel, I guess. I'm not sure about this one. It says Lou Albano. Let me read the question again. What? What popular wrestling manager earned the name Slingshot because he always snaps back from defeat? I've never heard Lou Albano I've ne- called no, Slingshot. No, I've ne- that, yeah, that's an inside joke somewhere. Luke the Kook Capetus. What the <laughs> is that is that the cousin of Katsabulus? Let me let me start again. True or false? Luke the Kook Lapetus tag team with Buddy Rogers to win the NWA Tag Team Championship on August 26, 1942. Oh, well, that's absolutely true. That is absolutely false. It is? You're kidding me. True or false? <laughs> Buddy Rogers didn't team with Larrap and Larry the Fucking whatever the fuck in 1942, I, I'm I'm astonished. True or false? Sloan Tempest wrestled in the 60s and was known for secreting foreign objects in the turnbuckles. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sloan Tempest sounds like a titty dancer from the 50s. <laughs> was known for secreting foreign objects in the turnbuckles. I what does that even you, mean? <laughs> what would she? <laughs> It's it's hiding, is secreting in that <laughs> definition is hiding rather than leaking. You can also you can leak secretions. Uh, true, um, true or false? I think that has to be false. I think they're thinking of the mad magician Billy Spears, who in in his day in Alabama and the Southern Territories was called the mad magician because he could produce foreign objects and different things like that from seemingly out of nowhere to use on his opponents. Of course, Billy Spears was later arrested for trying to organize a hit on Austin Idol. And that wasn't an angle. That was a real thing. That that is true. Yes. Yes. The, the infamous hit, he, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, I guess fortunately for Idol, but unfortunately for Billy Spears, he was better at foreign objects than he was at contract murder. Butch Reed goes by what other names? Hacksaw. And? Oh, Bruce Reed. He wrestled as, when he first started, he wrestled as Bruce Reed. You are correct with that, but that's not the other name listed. Also, Doom. Well, this is before Doom, I would imagine. Okay, well, wait a minute. All right, Bruce Reed, Hacksaw Butch Reed, The Natural Butch Reed. There we go. Okay. When shall an NWA referee disqualify a participant for rules and fractions? Anytime he shall decide to. Wrong. Oh. When that wrestler has been warned twice already. Ah, that's right. You got to give a, a fair warning. You got to do that. It's not cricket if you don't give fair warning. Which Mexican wrestling brothers owned and operated Casa Lothario in Tampa, Florida in the early 1970s? Well, obviously, it sounds like Jose Lothario would be part of that. Did he have a wrestling brother? 
The answer is Jose and Salvador Lothario. Was Salvador Lothario really his brother? Or was that an, an imitation brother? Because he, did, he didn't make it as far as Jose. Two tag teams use the name Kangaroos. Name them. The fabulous Kangaroos, Al Costello and Roy Heffernan, that later became Al Costello and Roy St. Clair, that later became Al Costello and Don Kent. And then there were a few other variations of the Kangaroos after that, including one early on involving Al Snow and Mickey Doyle, I believe. And the Royal Kangaroos of Norman Frederick Charles III and... Of course, the ever-popular Lord Jonathan Boyd. That is correct. The Fabulous and Royal Kangaroos. Yes. In the NWA, who determines ratings? <laughs> uh, the Nielsen people. No, uh, the, the rankings, I don't, I don't know what answer they would have given because it's actually there is none. A two-thirds vote of the NWA Board of Directors. Okay, that's completely fictitious. All right, a few more questions. True or false? Ox Baker is the brother of former televangelist Jim Baker, but chose to spell his name B-A-K-E-R due to the religious differences. <laughs> no, that is, that is false, uh, because Ox Baker was never the brother-in-law of Tammy Faye. Who was Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine's most popular wrestler in 1972? I'm going to give you a clue here. It's a tie. And obviously there was no PWI in 1972, but we've gone over this in the past. Right. We've established that they carried over the annual awards from Sports Review Wrestling and other of their publications. In, and you say 1972, and it was a tie. Most popular wrestler, Pedro Morales and... Pedro Morales and Jack Briscoe. Jack Briscoe and Fred Curry. Son of a... What? I'm surprised by that. No disrespect to Fred Curry, but I'm quite surprised by well, that. Well, then Pedro got another major award, and they couldn't... And it wasn't just a leg lamp. It was a major... And the, in the same magazine, and they couldn't give it to him twice. Because uh, Fred Curry was a big baby face, but Pedro, that was the height of his... WWWF title reign and their New York-based magazine. So he won something that year. According to the NWA official rules, a tag team mate must be this distance from his corner to tag in. How far? Now, say that again. How's that written? According to the NWA official rules, a tag team mate must... And those are three words. Tag team mate. A tag team mate must be this distance from his corner to tag in. How far? Well, I guess then that if there's no tag rope, he would have to be touching the turnbuckle. So it an arm's length is that Bingo. how they describe it? Okay, an That's arm's how length. You got it. Wow. Okay. All right. Two more questions here. Which second generation wrestler made his professional debut on Independence Day 1980 against Jerry Brown? Second generation wrestler. July 4th, 1980. It's one of the Von Erichs, is it not? It is not. It is not? It is not. Wait a minute. Okay, July 4th, 1980, debut against Jerry Brown. July 1980. Second Hel generation. <sighs> Give me the territory it happened in. 
Uh, I'm not certain. I would guess it would be probably Georgia or Alabama, but I'm not certain. Likely Alabama, but I'm not certain. One of the Armstrongs. Brad Armstrong, according to this. I never thought about that you know, when, he, when he debuted. That, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's right. There you go. And finally, Jim, true or false? When a championship vacancy occurs, the NWA may designate a new champion. Well, I, I mean, there's no rule written that way, depending on what happens if somebody fucking bailed and no-showed or walked out or whatever. Yes, that has happened. I don't know that that's a blanket ruling. That's one of those things that has to be game-specific to their time period and their area. I would think the answer would be no. The answer is true. True? A championship vacancy occurs. The NWA may designate a new champion, not even an interim champion, but a new champion. And See, I would have thought in Florida, Eddie Graham would have insist on some type of tournament elimination match or something rather than just naming a new champion. But maybe they set a precedent and then they couldn't get out of it. Well, there it is, the latest round of Gordon Soli trivia. And with that, we're going to wrap things up, Jim. Let's get a song or two. Here's a surprise. We have a new song from Israel from Lior. Yay! I hope you love my new song. I started writing it about a year ago. Oh, boy. And I finished it recently. Hope you like it, and thanks for the laughs and knowledge about wrestling and history. Yours uh, in your show. Keep up the good work. He means well. Here is uh, the latest song from Lior. gonna come in did he send it vocals? took him a year <laughs> my daddy was a fan of the territories and my mama she was a rat <laughs> by the time i was half alive they want to have a pro wrestler son but i dropped from wrestling school and started to watch pwg and czw they didn't understand <laughs> They want me to be respected like a Terry Funk or Stockholm Steve Austin. But I had another plans. <laughs> gonna be an outdoor wrestler. Gonna be a mild show fuck. Gonna be a cosplay joke. I gonna be an AW. An AW star. Starting to get this, I think. Well, I worked in the macho real hard, and I bought to myself a pizza cutter. <laughs> I gonna be on the top someday. I wanna be in AEW. I can see <laughs> my name in the Observer, and I can see it in the Observer Hall of Fame. <laughs> I've got the devil stars in my head. Tell me what to do to get seven stars <laughs> I'm all ears Gonna be an outdoor star Gonna be a macho fuck I'm gonna be an AW And I'm gonna be an AW star and I heard Tony pays well. <laughs> <laughs> I 
our sources. That's what we need to find out. Where is he hearing that Tony pays well? He's talking to all of them. They're all spilling their guts for Leor. I wonder if he's rocking out right now while this music is playing. He just turned it up. Or did he turn you down? Hey, nobody turns me down. I think he's going to come back now. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. She's been turned down more times than a bed at the Super 8. Where are you, Lior? Well, you can stick your referees and one knocks. And you can stick the ring. The floor is my ring. You can stick your wrestling psychology, cause I just want to throw my shit in. You can stick it, Corny, and you can stick your silly wrestling rules. And I want to do all of the shit that they do in Japan. Guys, I am not a wrestler. I'm just a cosplay fuck. <laughs> Gonna be an outlaw wrestler. Gonna be A-W Gonna be a macho fuck I'm gonna be an A-W A-W star I gonna be an outlaw wrestler I gonna be a macho star Eventually I will be an EVP In this company Yes, I am. I was gonna be an AW. And I will kill wrestling for good. Because I'm just a spot monkey and a macho fuck. <laughs> well, there he is. All the way from Israel, once again, the returning champion, Lior. What do you think of his return to the show, Jim? Uh, we've long awaited the return to the show of Lior. And again, what a a lyricist. I mean, the, the, the words not only are catchy, but also they just imprint themselves on your brain. You can just sing it because they just flow. Great job. All right, let's get one more and then we'll wrap things up. Let me see. A lot of people seem to have a, well... I wasn't going to play this, but this one just came in actually uh, yesterday. Let's go to this. It's about one of your favorite topics. This one was sent to Corny Drive through at gmail.com from Mike in Parts Unknown. to pack send the mail with john the hunchback but i really wanted to do it with Bree. <laughs> left alone with now and fanny uncle felcher it's uncanny how many packages that i can achieve <laughs> Instrumentals this week. They love them. 
I've been podcasting with my show Across the airwaves and video I've seen every shit stain and mud show on the way Now my figures have not stalled Cause I know who just to call Take me to them feather bottoms every time Oh, send my bloody variant tonight Oh, Australia first class alright Gonna order me some more feather bottoms. We'll make sure your packages are fucked. Feather <laughs> bottoms. We'll make sure your packages are fucked. All right. Well, there it is. Okay. Well, that's. It wasn't very melodic, but it gets the point across. Very, very good. Again, again, we give them. The big, the big applause. The big applause. Well, with that and the big applause, the drive-thru is closed. Ah, I hit it up my thumb. Damn it. All right. Well, you'll hear us Sunday, 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 Sunday night on the Jim Cornette Experience, wherever you find your favorite podcast. And next week, right back here on the drive-thru. Once again, wherever you find your favorite podcast, go through the archive today, patreon.com slash Cornette. For $5 a month, you get access to the archive. Going back to 2013, patreon.com slash Cornette. Also remember to subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections. Sometimes a clip or two may go up there before you hear it here on the podcast. Subscribe today. You never today. know. You never know. Maybe a surprise pop-up omnibus or two. Stay tuned and check out the exclusive and popular Travis Heckle artwork the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. You can follow Jim on Twitter at TheJimCornette. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Don't forget about Cornette's collectibles at JimCornette.com. How many figures did you say you had? Uh, we got 84 for the Crusade for Children fundraiser and around 30 or so for the fine folks in Australia and New Zealand. At JimCornette.com. Of course, the drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen Pinu, 888-692-8084. You heard him earlier. Get even with Stephen at NewLawOffice.com. But until this weekend, Sunday, as we said before, Sunday night on The Experience, and next week right back here on The Drive-Thru. For Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them door corner bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. 
ESPN, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. To the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you. Steven, Pedro, everybody. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass. <laughs> 